hero Poker Hero Gavin Griffin as a sponsor, bro. We've got a crooked cock, but he's straight as an arrow. When it comes to poker on Hero Poker, Terrence Chan won some tournaments at the same time. It doesn't make me think there was cheating involved. And now you got David Ewing, Daniel Schreiber. Who the fuck are these people on Hero Poker? What up, James Mackey? He's old enough to play. I don't care what you say. It's on Hero Poker. With the Lincoln shooting off for 30. 35% rate back only until June 1st. Sign that shit up. They're playing great. Snap it off clean with Hero Poker. Yo, it's Mikeon. Gonna bring you the Hero Rap, yo. Not seriously serious, but I may be seriously delirious. Yo, Gavin Griffin, his cock is crooked. His cards are not tarot on the felt. He's straight as an arrow, and he's not afraid of it. He's got a triple crown like Secretariat. Yo, Terrence Chan, the irony is grand. America is not a fan, but he's good at limits. He'll roll you, ace you in a minute. James. James, yo, it's James Mackey. He's not a lackey. He looks like he's eight, but at poker he is great. And let's face it, he's got a bracelet. The rest of these guys, I just don't know. But hey, David Ewing, what are you doing? Julian Powell, throwing the towel. And Daniel Schreiber, he gets all the Asian bitches. Like Hero, CEO, don't touch the blow. Like that bitch Joe Seabot, he's got a small cop. Hero Poker, 35% rate back. Check the thread and shooting off. Get that shit until June 1st. 30, 35% rate back. I'm out. Mike ends out indeed. So is Hero Poker. Don't bother to go to HeroPoker.com. I mean, you can. There's nothing there. This is an eight-year-old ad. Welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio, by the way. I'm Todd Dandruff with Tellus. It is 9.35 p.m. right now, Pacific Daylight Time, August 22nd, 2019. Tiger Piper, who's a longtime listener to this show and previous radio shows I was associated with, including Donk Down Radio, where that one was played, where that ad was played, requested the Hero Poker ad to be played to open the show. And he said he would donate his entire 143 25 that's $143.25, not, uh, not 14000 but uh, $143.25 he offered to donate, which is what I currently owe him, to the free roll if I play that as the opening. So I had tracked it down through the help of some members of the forum, and I played it. You may wonder... What was Hero Poker if you weren't around back then? As I said, if you go there now, you won't find it. Hero Poker was a skin into the merged network 
By the way, before I go into what Hero Poker was, you should know we have a free roll. Not on Hero Poker, but on our own poker site, the No Fraud Online Poker Room, which you can find near the top of the screen on PokerFraudAlert.com. We are giving away $81.63. 70 came from Tiger Piper. I held the rest over for next week. And $11.63 came from River Brad, who just decided to donate some remainder of what I owed him from the PC owned of me at the World Series of Poker. So thank you to him, too. $81.63 this week. It is the following pay structure. $38 for first, $19 for second, $14.63 for... Actually, is that right? Hold on. I changed it at the last minute. Let, Let me make sure... That what I'm reporting to you is correct. No, I did change it. Scratch all that. 35 for first, 22 for second, $14.63 for third, and 10 for fourth. That's 35, 22, $14.63, and 10. Decided it was too top heavy, so I changed it to this 35, 22, $14.63, and 10. Four prizes this week. Started at 9 20 p.m. Pacific, but you have until 9 45 to get in there with a Full stacks, you still got eight minutes. Make sure to go to pokerfraudalert.com slash freeroll, all lowercase, to understand if you qualify, and you also need your account to be enabled to get in there. That has to be done by either Belly Buster or myself. Only a one-time thing, but needs to be done to make sure that people aren't creating accounts on the No Fraud Online Poker Room, which can be found near the top of pokerfraudalert.com, that people aren't making accounts there to multi-account and dump chips to themselves. So we have to... Validate each one, one time. So those are the requirements to play the free roll. Make sure you do that and read the rule page. Otherwise, you won't get the free money we give away. I can pay you by Bitcoin, by bank transfer, by other methods you might be able to think of, such as a service that's been around for almost 20 years that's used to pay for things online, and the Cash App. I can pay you by the Cash App. Any of those methods are ways that you can retrieve your money. You can't get hero poker money, though. That's one way I won't pay you. Anyway, here's what happened. This was near the end of my tenure on Donk Down, which ended in September of 2011. This was uh, sometime in the middle of 2011. And a guy contacted us. I think his name was David Jung. It's been a long time, but I think it was David Jung was his name. Very nice guy from Hong Kong. And he started up a Merge Network skin called Hero Poker. And he really spent a lot of money on this. He really put a lot of time, effort, and money into Hero Poker. As far as site owners, he was great. He was very responsive, very accessible, nice and honest guy. The only problem was he wasn't in control of the network. It was a skin on Merge, and there's only so much a skin on Merge can do. And only so much a skin on Merge can make. He was on the same network as uh, Carbon Poker and uh, at, at one time Lock Poker, which in fact led to Hero Poker's downfall. He also had a lot of pros. That's what Mikeon was singing about. He was singing about Terrence Chan, singing about Gavin Griffin, uh, James Mackey, others. So they hired a number of pros. I don't know how much they got paid or if they owned a piece of it. I don't know what the compensation structure was for the pros. I'll give David credit that he really made an effort to get to know the poker community very fast. 
He listened to a number of Dockdown radio shows, got to know all the characters, the whole style of the site, came on and posted and introduced himself, clearly knew a lot about the community, and he did the same thing over on 2 Plus 2. This guy really put his heart and soul into it, but as I said, it was only a skin on the Merge Network. And for those of you that don't know, a skin is like, it's not your piece of software. It's a piece of software they give you. You basically design the graphics for it. And then you connect to their network. In this case, there was the merge network that was owned by Carbon, which was also had a skin on there. And then you get a piece of the rake. And you have to manage the money on your own. And uh, the, the whole thing was very limited as far as what one could make. It's kind of like a marketing partnership in a way. It's almost like you're an affiliate, except you actually have a client that people download from your site that you customize that they give you. And this is a common thing that's been going on for over a decade. This wasn't unique to the Merge Network. So Hero Poker was part of the Merge Network, and you just really can't establish yourself as a major brand if you're just a skin into another network. That's, that was a big problem. And that's why Hero Poker had a low ceiling as far as how far it was going to get and how successful it was going to be. I don't know if it ever made any money, but it wasn't doing that badly until Lock Poker started up with all these uh, secret, super high rakeback deals that were unsustainable. They were The way they were sustaining it was just by stealing player money and deposit. And they were also poaching players, so they'd hear about someone playing on another skin who's very active and grinding very heavily, and they'd poach them and say, hey, you're getting... 30% rake back over on Carbon, 30% rake back over on Hero. How about you sign up for Lock and we will give you 70% rake back? And the player would go, oh, okay, sweet. Same game, same players, same everything, except I get 70% rake back instead of 30? Yeah, of course. So Lock poached a bunch of players this way. And Merge just, they didn't seem to care much. And they said, well, present us the smoking gun proof. They just, they were in denial about the whole thing. And I remember David called me up, and he was just furious about the whole thing and said that this is destroying his site. And I said, yeah, I, I empathize with you. And he actually passed me some insider information, which I then posted. Of course, didn't say it came from him. I'm only saying it now because it's eight years later and because Locke is defunct. And Merge is, uh, I don't know, if is that even defunct? I, if it's not defunct, it's, it's uh, basically a non-factor at this point. But I, I felt for the guy. And eventually Hero Poker was no longer. At one point, he even offered to stake me to play on Hero Poker. And he offered that so I would play actively and generate rake. So strangely enough, he actually wanted to stake me to generate rake, which is kind of strange if you think about it, but I guess it makes sense in some way. But I said, no thanks, I, I can afford it. These were like not even high limit games, like 1020, 1530 limit hold'em. I didn't need a stake for that. If he's going to stake me to play like 200, 400 online, I'd say, yeah, sure. <laughs> I don't want to risk my money playing that high anymore, but uh, 10, 20, yeah, I'm not going to bother with a stake for that. And I, I told him that. I said, otherwise I would. It's just the profit is so small at these stakes anyway, I can't do a stake on top of that too. And he understood. So that was the end of Hero Poker. And a little postscript to Hero Poker... Um, I left Donk down under not very good circumstances, as many of you know. I was basically forced out. MyCon was under the delusion 
that I was the one holding the site back, which was funny because once I left, the whole thing collapsed. And everyone knew that's what was going to happen. But he had some idiots in his ear that were causing him to become delusional, and he really came to believe that I was the one who ruined his pet project that could have been mega successful and made him huge money and made him a huge name in poker. And it was only me holding him back. He really believed this, sadly. So that not only ruined our partnership at Donk Down, it ruined our friendship. And to this day, we're not friends and we'll never be friends again. Anyway, uh, Mike on at the time was broke. I believe he has money now because of Bitcoin. He was a very early adopter of Bitcoin. But at the time, he was super broke. And I had a piece of Donk Down. I wasn't going to let it go for free. But they were forcing me out. I ended up agreeing to a sweetheart deal for him where basically I, I was paid a very token sum of money and then gave up my 26% ownership in the place, which was a great deal for him because there were sponsors like Hero at the time and others that were paying like 500 bucks a month. So he would recoup, I think I sold it for like $1,200 my part. So he'd recoup that 1200 within like a month. To talk about a sweet deal. But I made the deal even sweeter. I let him sell it to me on credit to where he didn't have to put any money up front because he didn't have the 1200 to give me. So I let him tell, sell it to me on credit. And the whole reason I did this was just to get out. I was just sick of it. I was sick of Micon. I was sick of the, the, the drama. I was sick of the trolls trying to inflame the situation worse because they were getting a kick out of the whole thing. I was just sick of it all. So I, I decided, okay, look, I'm sure I'll get the 1200 at some point. And I, I just want out. And also that gave me some leverage where I tied the whole deal, which was really a sweetheart deal for him. I tied the whole deal to giving me at least a little bit of control after the fact to prevent people from like posting my personal info up there, which was important because some people tried to. So... Here's where Hero Poker comes in. Um, Mycon wasn't paying me anything. Like, the agreement was that any revenue that comes into Donk Down beyond just paying the bills to keep the server running, which I knew how much that was because I was the one uh, in charge of paying it before. So I knew how much exactly that was. And I said, you know, any revenue above that was supposed to go to me 100%. He can't reinvest in the site or anything like that. He has to pay me the 1200 first. That was in the agreement. In fact, that was in the separation contract we signed. Well, nothing was coming in, though. And he kept claiming all these different stories about why that was. But the truth was, he just didn't feel like paying me. He wanted to buy hats to sell at a profit. He wanted to reinvest in the site. He wanted to use the money to play poker. He, he didn't want to give me the 1200 because he already got what he wanted. He, he wasn't looking to roll me. He wasn't looking to stiff me. But he just kind of figured, hey, you know, when I, when I have more money, I'll, I'll eventually get the 1200 to Todd uh, until then screw him. He has enough money. He doesn't need the 1200 at the moment. Screw him, which, which is BS because he got the deal in the first place, this really good deal because I, that was, that was part of the whole thing. I wouldn't have made this sweetheart deal if I knew he was going to do this. The, part of the way, you know, part of the reason he got it for so cheap was because he agreed, number one, to keep my personal info off the site, and number two, to pay me immediately out of any profits. And that's the only reason I accepted this selling it to him on credit BS. Because it was really unfair to me if you think about it. He hasn't paid me a penny, advertising money still rolling in, and he's keeping all of it. 
I should get a share of that until I my part's really sold and I'm paid. But I let him off of that. So I wasn't being paid. I was getting excuses. So finally I said, you know what? I've got to figure this out. And I looked into old emails and figured out when Hero Poker had last paid. I think they were paying like once every three months, like 1500 bucks. So I figured out when the next $1,500 payment came in. And when it did, I called him that day and said, uh, Mike, on, I know you just got a lot of money from Hero. Send it to me. And he was furious. He was furious I figured that out. Because he was counting on that money for other things. And I said, Mike, on, no, this was our agreement. You owe me the money. I sold you the site on credit and you, it, it, with the agreement that anything above the site's expenses, any profit, goes to me until the 1200 paid. And he was furious. I'm going, why are you so angry? What were you so what are you so angry about that I'm asking you to keep to your agreement? <laughs> it's not even like I was reaching into his pocket like it's not like I'm showing up while he's playing poker and and grab any money that uh he walks away with above his buy in like this is money the site is generating a site that I'm supposed to still own because I haven't been paid yet and all I want to do is be paid what was offered to me. I don't want to rehash the whole thing. We've we've dealt with this a long time ago. But he was furious about me knowing the date that Hero Poker was paying him. And he was pretty surprised I remembered it or was able to figure it out. And he really had this clever plan, so he thought, that he would just pocket the money and continue to give me excuses. He didn't expect I'd call him and go, hey, I know you just, I know you just got 1500 today, Mike. <laughs> so uh, not too long after that, Hero Poker dropped him as a sponsor. And... Uh, and then Donk Down very quickly collapsed, and by this was, this was all in like October, November 2011. By like May 2012, it was like a ghost town over there. And now the site's like totally gone, has been for years. I actually made a hero poker ad. And we played it once on the show. And I actually thought the ad was kind of amusing. Like, I actually thought it was a decent ad. It's a very long ad. It was kind of like a skit featuring Colonel Fabersham and Alvin Finkelstein and some other characters. And it was all about Hero Poker and the fact that uh, the other merge skins weren't trustworthy and Hero was, which was the truth. It was all merge skins were not created equal. I mean, Lock Poker was a merge skin. That's, that should tell you something right there. So that, that was the whole point of the commercial that I did. There was like a six-minute commercial, but it wasn't a real commercial. It was more like a skit. And it was supposed to be kind of amusing, entertaining, and informative at the same time with all those characters. It was done uh, mostly in Colonel Fabersham's voice. The problem was everybody's attention span back in those days was so short that uh, because it ran for six minutes, people were like, oh my god, six minutes, when's this going to end? That People were really, really impatient with that ad, which kind of made me ashamed, like, oh, I, I, I created a piece of crap, and like I, I never played it again. It was, it was never heard from again. We never played that ad again. And in fact, I think Mike was kind of talking over it because he got sick of it. You know, his attention span was like nothing because he smoked pot all day and all night. So I was kind of ashamed of that ad for all these years. And I happened to run into it today when I was looking for other hero poker stuff. And I played it and I go, you know what? This isn't that bad. It's it's not a masterpiece. It's not a a comedic masterpiece. But I actually thought it wasn't that bad. You guys can judge. I want to play this later in the show. Take a little break. I won't do it right now. But later in the show, I'm going to play my... Six-minute hero poker ad featuring Colonel Fabersham and Alvin Finkelstein. You, you can tell me what you think of it, if you think it really is crap or if you think it's uh, at least mildly entertaining. I did like in MyCon's ads that uh, despite all the money hero poker was paying him, he didn't even bother to 
edit any of it, and he just he he really just did one recording session, and that was it. And he didn't even bother to do the little editing for like the thirty percent off. Instead of saying thirty thirty percent off, you know the way they edit it to where it repeats the person's words. He actually just did this. He just said thirty thirty instead of using a sound editor. That's how little effort he put into the whole thing. That David Junga, he was a very good sport about the whole thing. He knew Mikon's ads were kind of just low effort, and people liked them actually because they were so low effort, so he had a good attitude about it and said he liked them, which I think he really did. And I guess they were memorable enough to where Tiger Piper wanted to hear them. But that's the hero poker story. I have no idea where David Jung is these days. But I only have good things to say about him. I wasn't even bitter that he continued sponsoring Donkdown once I was gone. I knew it was just uh, just business, and, you know. And he didn't have any more loyalty loyalty to me than Mike on. We it's not like we were close friends or anything. Anyway, speaking of uh, close friends, let me call up a friend of mine who comes on the show. What's happening, Jeff? Trader Ruski, hello. How's it going? I think it was in 2011 when I first met you. Isn't that true? Probably right, right around there. Maybe 2010. Yeah, yeah may right been, around there. May have been 10. Yeah, that's right. It could have been one of those two years. Anyway. Uh, wow. I wonder if, if, if uh, Mike Hahn had offered to uh, pay you in bitcoins back then for the 1200 Imagine. It would have been worth. It would have been huge. That's true. I should have accepted Bitcoin. That was my mistake. Exactly. I should have. But, I mean, I, I should have. How well, was that? Well, yeah, I would have sold them, but the funny thing is, like, I should have accepted them and then somehow had just, like, some kind of brain injury that made me forget I had them and then have, like, a miraculous recovery today. And exactly. then, then then I'd be really happy. I'd be in a great mood. No matter how badly anything else that day was going, I'd be in a great mood. I, I could probably be diagnosed with cancer that day and still be in a great mood if I found that. <laughs> So, okay, let me. Uh... But those, but by the way, just that thing, those donk down shows were such a fucking shithole. I mean, those were so horrible after you left. And who were these people that were saying, talking shit? Are you going to out them? Uh, well, I mean, one of them was, was uh, Adam Schoenfeld, but uh, people knew. I, I already re- outed that years ago. But it wasn't just him. Uh, Mycon's wife was one of them. And, and then there were, there were kind of like random people in Vegas that, he, that, he was friends with that I kind of just knew as acquaintances, which they, they didn't hate me, but we just, uh, um, it wasn't that we didn't get along. They just didn't care for me for whatever reason, which, which is fine. Some people don't, but, uh, um, the problem was like, he would ask them, Hey, why aren't you on my site? You know, they could really use posts from you. Oh, uh, um, 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 oh, oh, Druff is there. I, I, I don't really like him. Oh, okay. And so like <laughs> all these people told him this. And then w- once I leave, he's like, okay, uh, my site doesn't have Druff anymore. Uh, yeah, you know, I've been really busy. I'll get around to posting sometime. They, they, none of them ever came. None of them ever came. Not one. And, and Schoenfeld actually took my position on the radio show for one episode, and he basically got booed off the stage. Because what, what he didn't realize, Schoenfeld, was that uh, he was popular on the show in small doses. But when he was, like, the full co-host, people didn't like him. They kind of found him to be arrogant and... Uh, just it, it seemed like he was kind of looking down on the the listeners and the users. They they really didn't like him, and a lot of them just were kind of bitter that I was gone. 
So they they really gave it to him in the chat room, and he, Schoenfeld was kind of sensitive to criticism. So like when he read what they were saying in the chat room, and some of them even called in and bashed him, he just said to Mike, "On you know what? Uh, this isn't for me. I'm gone." And they stayed friends. I think they're still friends. In fact, I think Schoenfeld is the one running the current seals of clubs. But uh, sh- that was the end of his participation on uh, Donkdown Radio. But I-, I agree it sucked when I was gone. I'm not just saying that because I was gone. I mean, I-, I was a little bit worried, like, uh, what if the show is better without me? <laughs> if-, if that was the case, that was the case. But I-, I listened to a few of the episodes after I left, and I go, you know what? These episodes suck. <laughs> Objectively, these episodes really suck, and I'm I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad to hear that uh, my presence there mattered. All 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 of us together there made a good show, but I'm not saying I was the the show itself. It was it was a good show with all of us. Every me, Mike, on, and Brandon all together made a good show. It was just uh, once I was gone from there, such a big element from the show got removed that it was kind of it was kind of like a big hole was left that wasn't replaceable and it, it, the whole thing just kind of fell apart and uh, and then Brandon quit and uh, obviously it got even worse at that point and then then when Brandon came over here we 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 had a great show so obviously uh, I'm not saying anything bad about Brandon here because we put him and he and when he does shows himself they're good it was just uh, the show with him and Mike on it, it wasn't a good show but I I blame Mike on for that he he was the one kind of putting it all together there and uh Anyway, Brandon can come back any time, by the way, if, if he's uh, ever interested in uh, returning to radio. There's an open invitation. We still talk and all that, so you never know. He just pops up and returns. You never know what's going to happen. So here's the agenda tonight. Actually, let me give you a few other things, little tidbits here. The call to listen line, 605-313-0736 is a way to listen to the show. 605-313-0736. You can just call up and listen. does not require anything but a phone that will dial. Computer, internet, data plan, none of that's necessary. None of it's necessary. Just a phone, an old school phone that you can call and listen to the show. You can listen to the live show or you can listen to our streaming reruns on there when we're not live. You can also listen via TuneIn live the tune in app or you can use alexa say alexa play poker fraud alert radio and it actually will play the live show or the streaming reruns to listen in the archives you can listen on the tune in app the stitcher app itunes google play the bullhorn app you can even just play or download the mp3 directly from the radio forum of pokerfraudalert.com you can find links to all of these on the radio tab near the top of the screen on PokerFraudAlert.com. It's very simple. And any phone numbers we give out, you can find there, including our call-in numbers, 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355. You can also call the Mount Charleston line. Another call-in number to the show, 702-430-1808, 702-430-1808. the Mount Charleston line. An old 70s rotary telephone on top of Mount Charleston in a cabin I have there near Las Vegas. You can text me anytime on the main phone number of the show, 775-372-8355. I will read your text on the air unless you ask me not to at the beginning of the text or unless it's really obvious that I'm not supposed to. But just to be safe, say don't read on air if you really don't want me to read it on air. 
Okay. Oh, one other thing, the chat room. You can go in there, the chat tab on the top of the screen. You need a flash-enabled device, no iPhones or iPads, and you need a Poker Fraud Alert forum account in good standing to get in and to chat. Only bother during the live show. If we're not live, you will not hear anything. So that's Or not see anything. You'll hear things, you just won't uh, see anything. It's only active during the live show. Okay. We announced the show pretty uh, last minute today. So ratings are low at the moment, but we get most of our listenership through the archives, but it'll help you guys in the free roll. There's probably not many players. How many players are the Trader Ruski? You see? Are you playing? I, w- I was playing. Um, you know what? I didn't even look. I pre-registered. I okay. got it started. I'm playing Bobata tournaments. Then All I right. jumped in. It was All chaos. Right. Okay. <laughs> Here's the agenda. We don't have a long agenda tonight, I'll be honest. So kind of just whatever happens. Uh, top story, it is confirmed. Phil Ivey's winnings at the World Series of Poker from event number 58, the Poker Players Championship, have been taken by the Borgata. It's true. It's gone. That is the end of Phil Ivey's winnings. I, I had wondered, what's he going to do? How is he going to get around this? Well, he didn't. They, they have the money. So we'll talk about that, why he might have played, and if this is the end of U.S. tournament poker for Phil Ivey, it very well might be. A, an altercation at the table between a male and a female in Colorado turned to chaos. First, uh, it had something to do with showing each other their hands. And the lady sarcastically said something like, I'd rather show you my tits. She wasn't really offering. She was like sarcastically saying that. This was during a tournament. And she busted the tournament and then for some reason called the police. I think she wanted her buy-in back. I'm, I'm not sure why she felt she was entitled to that. I, I wish I could do that. I wish when I busted like the 10K Limit Hold'em event at the World Series, I, I wish I could just call the police and get the 10K back. That would have been sweet. But she apparently tried that. And it didn't quite go the way she was hoping. She was hoping the police would come there and that she would get her buy-in back. But that's not exactly what happened. She called the police. They showed up and they decided that they were arresting her for outstanding warrants. (laughs) Oops. Not exactly what she was hoping would happen. So we'll talk about that. I even located who she is. I figured it out. They they didn't name her in any of the articles about this or the tweets about this. Nothing named her, but I found her because uh, buried in the whole Twitter discussion of this, she briefly responded. She briefly, I guess she found the tweets about this and responded. So I'll tell you who she is, what I can see so far. Maybe you guys can try to figure out what her warrants were for, because everyone's curious about that. So we'll discuss that weird story. An end of an era. No more mass multi-tabling allowed on Poker Stars. Remember the story of guys like, uh, oh, I don't know, who was that guy? Uh, Nanoko, that was his name. Nanoko, remember he like twenty-four tabled, no limit, like all day and all night. And just earned an insane number of uh, FPPs there. There were some of these people that just would 
multi, multi, multi table and get in a ton of hands. At Limit Hold'em, if you're a Limit Hold'em player, there's only so much you could do because Limit Hold'em moves a lot faster. There's no way to 24 table Limit Hold'em at all. But no limit, you can do it if you're really good at it. Anyway, that's all over. They have reduced, greatly reduced the number of tables you can run at the same time on Poker Stars. I will tell you how many, and I'll tell you why they did it. Another Nevada casino robber has been shot dead by police, this time in Laughlin, not in Las Vegas. You remember the last time was in March of early, earlier this year when uh, Michael Cohen, not Trump's former attorney, but uh, casino robber Michael Cohen, who we had once called uh, White Humpty because he dressed in this uh, outfit that kind of made him look like hump, a white version of Humpty Hump. Uh, he attempted to rob the Bellagio in March and was shot dead in a shootout with police right in the valet area. And then uh, prior to that, a poker player named Darren Atterbury, also known as Darren Lara, had been under suspicion by police because he resembled the robber somewhat. And very stressful for him. We had him on the show and he told his uh, very uh, disturbing story of being strongly suspected of serious crimes and wondering if one day the hammer was going to come down for a crime he didn't commit. Fortunately for him, the real robber uh, ended up getting caught and killed. And he's in the clear now. But anyway, another robber has been shot dead. This time nobody was falsely accused of it, but we'll talk about what happened there. I'll also tell you my impression of Laughlin in general. The Hard Rock Casino is going to permanently close in February of 2020 ahead of a rebranding. It's going to become Virgin Hotels Las Vegas is going to be the name of it. And that's going to be happening later in 2020, but they decided they're just going to shut down completely instead of leaving it open for the most part while the rebranding is occurring. I'll explain why that's going on. Eight casino workers in Florida have been charged with stealing $5.3 million over four years via a fake credits in slot machine scheme. And finally, Run It Once Poker now has resizable tables. Wow, it's uh, taken a long time. Years of development, but now you can actually resize the tables on Run It Once Poker, now bringing them into the 2002 era of online poker. You can laugh. That's that's true. That's true. They they the software was actually inferior to software released in 2002. Not exaggerating. Not joking. But is this going to help? Can Run It Once be saved, or is it now too late for them to ever succeed? That is Phil Galfon's site that was supposed to be the savior of online poker, and in reality looks like a gigantic mismanaged fail. Very fascinating story too. I actually told my girlfriend the whole story today about Phil Galfond and Run It Once. And the reason I thought she would be fascinated by it, which she was, is that she actually works in that field of project management. And she's managed software projects before. So I said, here, here's something you want to hear about something that's like as mismanaged as it can be. 
where someone entered a project with like no idea of the planning involved and the requirements phase and the market research phase and the proper management of the development timeline and the prior prioritization of features like none of this was done do you want to hear a story about that and she said yes and i told her and she, she thought it was interesting so that's our agenda tonight and we may have a bonus colonel fabersham call someone reported something on the real grinders group that had to do with a counterfeit bill and being almost arrested for it and i, I was thinking colonel fabersham might call in but uh I've got to get more details. I, I want to know more about that story before the colonel calls in this place. So. They played poker with a counterfeit bill? Something. See, that's the point. She, she, like, she made this detailed post about it, which I didn't get to see. Then they came to some kind of agreement, like her in the casino. It was a small casino or small poker room. It was someplace. It's not like this happened at, at the Bellagio. This was some small place. And they came to some agreement. She took her post down as part of the agreement, and then they kind of like half-stiffed her in the agreement, so then she posted about it again. But then the original post describing everything was gone, so I'm like, uh, can you tell us the whole story again? Because I know it's kind of about a counterfeit $100 bill and how they almost arrested you and it was actually their fault or something like that, but I'm not understanding it, so can you tell us more? Because some people were responding there that they want Colonel Fabersham to call in. That's how my attention was even brought to it. So he will, I've just... Got to know more. So we may have a bonus Colonel Fabersham call, especially because we'll probably have time since this is not an incredibly heavy agenda, as which often occurs shortly after the World Series. There's just kind of a slowdown in poker news and sometimes even in gambling news for whatever reason. Let's talk about Phil Ivey and what went on with him. Phil Ivey as you guys probably know by now, has an $11 million or so judgment against him held by the Borgata. The judgment is because he redeemed $11 million worth of winnings through Baccarat play there. And he was actually engaging in a form of advantage play called edge sorting, which I won't bother to go into, but I feel he was just engaging in advantage play and wasn't cheating. Some people think it was cheating. I disagree. I'm, I'm actually on Ivy's side on this one. But the court wasn't, and the court ruled that you know, there's not going to be any criminal penalties against him, but that he owes them the $11 million that he profited from there and had already cashed out. So they've had this judgment for quite some time, and they've been trying very hard to collect this $11 million. Ivy isn't exactly showing up there and just handing them the money. He's been making it very difficult for them, especially because the amount of money is very large. I don't know how much Ivy has, but I have to think $11 million is either more than he has at the moment or is a very large chunk of what he has. So he's been dodging this. We had decided and concluded something that seemed very reasonable at the time, that this was the end of Ivy playing any U.S.-based poker tournaments because... If he were to get deep in any of these tournaments, the Borgata could simply have the money held up and then garnish the entire win and take it all from him 
and he would end up with nothing. So he would only play with a downside. Either he would lose, or if he won, the money would be taken by Borgata. It's kind of depressing circumstances to play under. So I was sure he was done with the World Series. I was sure he was done with all U.S.-based poker tournaments, anywhere that the Borgata could reach and take the money. That's why I was shocked to see that he was playing at the 2019 World Series. And I I discussed this with other players at the table, especially while the Poker Players Championship event was going on, the 50K buy-in. And we're talking about why is he playing? Because I, I was in some simultaneous event, so and he was doing well. He was chip leader at one point. One point. So we were talking about, like, what if he wins? Is Borgata really going to take all the money? That, that was the hot topic at the tables. And I had some idiots at the tables acting like they knew. Oh, well, actually, he recently filed motions to prevent Borgata from doing this. I go, really? I haven't heard about this. No, 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 no. That's that's what he did. That's why he's playing. And they were so sure of themselves. <laughs> they were wrong. This, this never happened at all. The truth was, Ivy really didn't have a plan, from what I could tell. Now, it's possible he was playing for other reasons, such as bracelet bets with people, or to try to accumulate Player of the Year points, something like that. He was obviously aware this could happen. This didn't shock him that it happened, but I was still surprised. I still thought, is there something I'm missing here? Is, or is he really playing, knowing that there's a good chance the Borgata is going to take the money? And he was playing a 50K buy-in to where no matter what he cashes, it's something significant. It's not like he's playing some 1500 event where the Borgata may not waste a lot of time going after him for a min-cash. This, this is something where no matter what he cashes, it's going to be something they're going to probably want. The top prize was slightly over a million. He ended up finishing seventh for like 100-something thousand, 127,000, I think. Let me see what the exact amount was. Uh, it was eighth actually for 124,000. Seventh paid 124. Also, it was the same thing. The winner of this was uh, Phil Hui. This was also the, also the event where the infamous hand where Bryce Yaki took that horrendous beat in Deuce to Seven against Josh Arie. So, as I said, Ivy, who was chip leader throughout a lot of it, finished eighth. Cashed 124k for a 74k profit, and not surprisingly, the Borgata came after it, and it seemed like just a matter of time until the Borgata was actually successful in getting that money. And indeed, it has been found via court records that uh, Haley hints of flesh draw looked up that the parent company of the Borgata, named uh, Marina District Development Company, LLC, had the entire 124K garnished. They got the whole thing, including his 50K buy-in. So he, he didn't just not win, he lost. He lost 50K as if he busted in the event. That's pretty insane that he actually played, finished eighth in a very tough event, and then they actually garnished not just what he won, but what he won, including the buy-in. So he ended up losing 50K as if he never cashed in the first place. Pretty bad. 
was not the sound effect I was trying to play. <laughs> uh, here it is. This is what I was trying to play. Hit the wrong button. Anyway, here is the letter that was sent to uh, two people at Caesars by a lawyer at the Borgata named Jeremy Klausner. He sent an email on June 27th to two lawyers at Caesars. Please be advised that I represent the Marina District Development Company, LLC, also known as Borgata. With respect to the Borgata's case against Philip Ivey and Chung Yin Sun, you may recall that we obtained a judgment against Ivey and Sun for, for $10 million as a result of the Baccarat Edge sorting scheme. You may also be aware that Mr. Ivey is currently playing in the World Series of Poker event number 58, the Poker Players Championship. As of the end of day three, Mr. Ivey is the chip leader and, quote, in the money as one of the final 12 entrants. Today we had a writ of execution from the District of Nevada served by the U.S. Marshal on Caesars Entertainment at the Rio in Las Vegas. The writ was personally delivered to Jack Effel, World Series of Poker Tournament Director. A copy is attached. The writ attaches any assets due Mr. Ivy from Caesars, including his payout for event number 58, and his bracelet if he's the winner. Wow. We have had a writ of execution issued from the District of New Jersey to Caesars Interactive Entertainment. Although the New Jersey writ has not been served, it is in process for service by the U.S. Marshal in Camden. That's Camden, New Jersey, by the way. Please ensure that Caesars does not make any payments to Mr. Ivey in violation of the duly served writ. When the current event is over, we or the U.S. Marshal will provide instructions for payment. Should you have any questions, please do not hesitate to contact me, Jeremy Klausner. So... Not only did they want the 124K, they wanted his bracelet. I mean, he, you know, he hadn't cashed yet. He'd cashed, but it wasn't clear what place he was going to be. But, so they said if he wins, they want his bracelet. The million bucks wasn't enough. They actually wanted the bracelet, too. That's just brutal. But I guess they can do it because the bracelet is part of a prize. They they can't just show up and see Ivy playing and grab a previous bracelet he won off his wrist. But the, But they can, I guess take the bracelet because that's part of the prize and it does have value in fact at the very least it could be melted down for the materials I wonder what they would have done with it would they have put it up for auction like what would they have done if they seized that bracelet you know what would have been really brutal if they seized it and just like put it on display at the Borgata in their poker room as like a decoration I wonder if legally they could do that I wonder if legally they could I know they could seize this bracelet according to this letter but could they then take the bracelet and use it for a decoration in their casino? you think they could because they own it. They could put Phil Ivey's bracelet. Now, they probably couldn't put a picture of him there because that would be using his likeness without his permission. But they, uh, an object, I, I wonder if they could actually put Phil Ivey's bracelet without compensating him further. That would be really brutal. Imagine if he got his bracelet seized and it's like on display somewhere there against his, uh, against his will. Haley posted a copy of the check that she got a hold of. It was from Rio Properties, Inc., DBA Rio Suite Hotel Casino. It looks just like the check that I got after I cashed the main event for 59 k Except instead of pay to the order of Todd Wittellis for 59 k it says pay to the order of Philip D. Ivey Jr., care of United States Marshal Service, 
124,410. So it was technically to fill Ivy, but it was care of the marshal service who then takes the money and doesn't give it to Ivy. Ouch. Then Caesar's attorneys wrote this. In this case, the court issued the writ of execution served on Caesar's restraining delivery of, of money due Mr. Ivy. Since the time of service of the writ of execution, Caesar's had, has had in his possession the total amount of 124,410, the Ivy funds. Caesar's is not the employer of Mr. Ivy. Caesar's is not a financial institution. Caesar's does not know of any additional debts due to Mr. Ivy. Thus, Caesar's has delivered the total Ivy funds to the United States Marshal Service, fulfilling its obligations and relieving itself of further liability pursuant to NRS 31.310.2.3. So basically, they're saying, we did what you asked. We're out of it. Don't ask us to do anything further. We did all, requ- we're all we are required to do. We held up the money. We gave you every penny of it. As far as anything else he owes... You're on your own. If you remember, Ivy shot off his chips very quickly in like 10 minutes at the main event, which wasn't too long after this. Some believe that Ivy's heart was not in the event at that point, after this had just happened. Now, this check was dated July 16th, which was after the main event, but... This Ivy's att- obviously Ivy couldn't get his money, so he knew it was coming. So by the time he played the main, he knew the 124k was very likely never to see his pockets. So he either just kind of—I I don't know why he even played the main event at that point—but it, it's possible that uh, his mind just was elsewhere, and he was just kind of feeling hopeless. Like no matter what I do here, they're going to take it. So he just shot off the money. He could have killed the whole debt and got it off his chest. That's true. And that's a question. Would Ivy rather he win something big and and put an end to this, or is he so bitter toward the Borgata over this that he just never wants him to get it? Well, I'm sure he doesn't want him to get it, but I mean, it's, you know, he probably can't put money in bank accounts. I'm sure he'd rather just get rid of it. And I wonder, you know, I wonder if Eric's listening, but because he's a professional poker player and that's his career job, I was surprised they were able to get a hundred percent of what he earned. Yeah, I. The funny you know, thing is, I, I had thought that they were going to get like. I, I had read something else on this show. That I think it was that, uh, uh, what what they had sent to Caesar's and the U.S. Marshal, and I was I thought I saw something about seventy five percent, not the, not a hundred percent. But um, maybe the 75% was of, I think that was for the state of Nevada of, of whatever assets they find or, or whatever his income is. I think maybe tournament poker winnings are different. There must have been some reason they could have gotten the whole 124. I, I understand your point, and it's, it's a good point, that if he's claiming he's supporting himself on this, how can they take every penny, including the buy-in? But they've, they've taken every penny, including the buy-in. <laughs> so, so he actually lost in the event where he cashed and made the final table which is weird. I would think that at the very least he could get his buy-in back to where they get any winnings, but he gets to keep whatever he put into the event. He at least gets the money back, but nope. 
They got the whole damn thing. See the check, the copy of the check right in front of me. So, that's it. And there's no way he sold a piece, right? Uh, I. That's a good question, but I'm guessing probably not. But yeah, that would be a pisser for whoever backed him. Though you'd have to think they would know this. The, the backer would have to be an idiot not to think this is a possibility. I guess if the backer knew and backed him anyway, they'd take the loss too. I, I definitely would not have backed Ivy in this World Series. Unless I knew with 100% certainty this couldn't happen. So I think the days of Phil Ivy playing the World Series are over. I think it's done. I think he's just going to dodge this forever and hide his money and probably live outside the country and if not that, play cash where they can't easily get to it. I think this is going to be something that dogs Ivy forever. Is it possible he'll come back next year and play and just play for the points? Yeah, it's possible. Like he knew this could happen this year and played anyway. But now that it actually happened, that's a little harder to motivate yourself to come play. It's one thing to think they might come after my winnings. Here here they did and successfully did so and actually took the buy-in too. So if Ivy knows that whatever he buys into these tournaments, he's either going to lose or the Borgata is going to take buy-in and all. If he knows the second he buys into a tournament, the money's just gone. That's pretty depressing. It's hard to play under that cir- those circumstances. So he might just be done. He might just play in other locations where the Borgata can't reach him. I know the World Series has to be disappointed by this. One of the years when Ivy wasn't there for a while, and this wasn't because of this situation, but Ivy wasn't there for a while. I think he was playing big games in Macau. He finally came in towards the end of the World Series, and you should have seen the expression on Jack Effel's face. I mean, Jack Effel looked like he was having an orgasm right there on the floor of the World Series when he saw Ivy. He just uh, he walked Ivy over there. He, he, he looked like uh, it was the best day of his life. They really want people like Ivy playing the World Series because it's, it's very good for the brand. It's very good for marketing. It's very good for generating excitement in these events when you have players like Ivy playing. So to lose a very, very major poker player, one of the best-known poker players in the world, possibly for good because of this, really has to annoy Caesars, but nothing they can do. Well, I guess there's one thing they could do. They could pay his $11 million, but they're not going to do that. So that's the breaks. That's what happens. Looks like they're going to lose Ivy. Not that they don't have plenty of stars still playing there. The World Series, pretty much everybody plays. But not having Ivy is a big loss to them. They count on these pros playing these events. That's why they kiss their ass so much. That's why they bag Ivy's chips for him. That's why they do all these favors for the very big-name pros, because they feel they need them. They feel like they are partially what's driving the excitement of the World Series. People want to be able to come there and say they played with Phil Ivy, say they played with Phil Helmuth. How often, if you're just a regular rec player, how what chances do you usually have to play with guys like that? You don't. So this is a way you can enter events and, and play with these very big-name pros and come back home and tell people you did. You say, hey, you know, I, built, I beat uh, Ivy in a hand. Hey, I beat Phil Helmuth in a hand. It's very exciting for a lot of recreational players. A lot of them, their dream is to show up and play with them. 
So I'm sure this is frustrating for the World Series. When I play with these guys, I, I think it's interesting when someone sits at my table who's a known player, and I mention it on Twitter, but it, it doesn't like excite me or anything. And that's because I, I've been a poker pro myself for so long that I don't consider myself a fan of poker. So I'm kind of just there with them. I'm not saying I, I see them the same as I see everybody else at the table. And I, I think it's interesting when I'm enhanced with them and I'll tweet about it, but I'm like, oh my God, Phil Ivey's at my table. I'm so excited. Like, I, I don't get excited like that. And that's really because I, I'm also a poker pro. I'm just not known like they are. But for the World Series, this is not good. Not devastating, but not what they wanted. All right, moving on to our next story. And this story is is very, very different than the Ivy story. This is about as different as you can get. This is more of a, a tabloid degenerate story. This is the type of story a lot of you listen for. A lot of you don't want to hear about Phil Ivey and his legal battles. A lot of you want to hear hear stuff like this. Like, I think, sadly, our most popular segment on last week's show was A. Hoosier A's call about the masturbator stalking his wife. (laughs) Uh, And by the way, it looks like a happy ending to that one, or mostly happy ending, and not the kind you're thinking of. The guy is just gone. Since she took a picture of the license plate, it seems like it spooked him, and he's not coming back, so... Sadly, no more to that story. Yeah, but that just means he's jerking off around somebody else's girl or someone that, that, else. That's true. There may be a different Hope, victim now, but someone we hopefully don't Hopefully it'll be another PFA listener. Right. right. We, we could run well with that. It is Las Vegas. So maybe if, if you're one of the listeners of this show and, and your wife is, is having a, a weird masturbator jerk off during the lunch hour in a car next to her, and it may, look for the envelope. If you see an envelope as being what's used to finish in, then you know it's the same guy. It's a very specific MO there. So if, if the envelope's involved, please get a hold of me, and then we'll continue the story. In this story, though, the villain is actually a female. Last week, the sexual story was featuring the male as the villain, which it usually is. This week, the villain's female. Not as bad of a villain, but uh, still somewhat of a villain. Here is what happened, and it was reported by uh, a player there as this was happening. Let me get to this story here. It was reported by Will Givens the Fourth. I don't know who he is, but he's the one who reported this. This was uh, taking place in a Colorado casino. He wrote, uh, Lady Opens gets three bets she calls. This is at a tournament. A lady raised and she gets three bet and called. Flop, she checks, he bets, and she tanks about ten seconds into her tanking. He says, if you show your hand, I'll show mine. She then looks him in the eyes and says, I'd rather show you my tits and mucks. Okay, then. Now, some people mistook this. Some people believe this was her offering to show her tits to him. It's a, it sounds like a sarcastic comment, like, I would not want to show you my tits, but uh, I so badly don't want to show you my hand that uh, if, if I had to, I would rather show my tits, if I, if I had to choose between the two. That's, that's what she was trying to say. This wasn't an offer to show her tits, and some people 
misunderstood that. It's still kind of a weird conversation at the table. <laughs> I, we've all had this before where someone says, will you show? Will you show if I show? Like I've had that a lot of times where people ask that. But she responded with, I'd rather show you my tits. Wow. So it seemed to be done for the moment. It seemed that the weird conversation ended. But then he tweeted this. This escalated quick. So sometime after she offered the titty show, she said, That's, this is the closest you'll get to a woman. And then came the response, which really, really set her off. She was saying something insulting to him, that this is the closest he'll ever get to a woman regarding the being shown her tits, or just sitting next to her, I guess. She, she wasn't actually going to show her tits, but basically where they were right then was the closest he'll ever get to a woman. So she was putting him down. So he said back, uh, no, I'm good. You look like a tranny. So Will Givens wrote, she went nuts. Two hours later, she went bust and then wanted a refund. Called the cops and wants to press charges. Now, I'm not sure who she wanted to press charges against. Was it the casino? Was it against the guy who said she looked like a tranny? I don't know. But uh, for whatever reason, she called the cops and th- felt she was in des- she was deserving of a refund. Which doesn't even make sense. If you, if you have a claim against the casino, you'd have to sue them. You can't call the police to get the casino to refund you a buy-in. So the police came. And then he tweeted this. Ha 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 ha. She got a warrant. She called the cops on herself. This is nuts. And then he showed a picture of her being led away in handcuffs. Pretty interesting. She has a warrant and is dumb enough to call the police over something like this. Nuisance call, basically, to the police. And... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> she gets arrested for having warrants against her. You think if you had warrants, you go, you know what, I'm going to stay away from the police. Like, if there's a super emergency, I'll call the police. But for something minor, I think I'll skip the police because they're going to arrest me. That, that's what someone with common sense would think. But no, she somehow believed that she was due a refund for the tournament. I have no idea why. If I had to guess, and again, I'm just making this up. If I had to guess... She'll probably her, her point was probably like that the guy at the table was being so nasty to her that she couldn't concentrate and the and the therefore the venue for not stopping it owed her the refund back. Probably something stupid like that. But uh she called the cops and she ended up being taken away. Well, who was this woman? And why well, we know why she was arrested, but what warrants did she have? Well, I know the answer to part of this. I don't know why the warrants were there. I don't know what they're for. But I did figure out who she is. Her name, from what I could tell, is Krista Pryor. And she is from Colorado Springs. 
You can see her now protected Twitter account. Protected means that you can't see her tweets, but you can see the profile and the picture. It's at Krista, C-H-R-I-S-T-A. It's Krista with an H. C-H-R-I-S-T-A 1085. 1085, like 1085. Krista 1085 on Twitter. She has a son who's in one of her pictures on Twitter, you'll see, a young boy. And she has an Instagram account, too, where you can see a lot of pictures of both of them. Her Instagram account, if you want to see it, is Instagram.com slash, is all lowercase, C period prior, P-R-Y-O-R. C period prior. Instagram.com slash C period prior. I believe the 1085 probably has to do with her birth date. She's probably born in October 85. That's just my guess from looking at her. It would make sense that that's what that would mean, which would put her just a bit short of 34 years old. Since her tweets are protected, I was unable to see her Twitter, but I used an archive service, or shall I say an archive service, to look up her past tweets, and there was a lot of anti-Trump stuff. Like a lot of her tweets were political and anti-Trump. You can take that for what it's worth. Doesn't mean that much in this situation, but just to get a full picture of her. She appears to be a single mom and seems to have one son who looks like he's about five years old or so. A lot of pictures of him. A number of pictures of her on the Instagram. I bet what's on your mind right now is, does she look like a tranny and is she a tranny? The answer is no to both. I don't know for sure. I guess she could have a big penis down there and I wouldn't know. But from what I can see, she does not look to me like a tranny. And she's, she's not, she's kind of average looking to me, to be honest. Like her main picture, she looks cute. If you look at the other picture, she just kind of looks like an average woman in her 30s. I wouldn't say she's hot. I wouldn't say she's ugly. She's kind of average. Nothing that interesting about how she looks. Uh, some pictures are better than others. But overall, I'd, I'd place her at about average. If you want to be one of these guys on the internet who thinks that any chick who's not really hot is, is ugly or nasty, or you know, there's, there's guys who do that on the internet. Oh, no, she's so gross. No, she's not. She's like just kind of like an average 30-something-year-old white woman. And I do wonder, since it looks like there's no dad or boyfriend in the picture, I don't see any pictures with, of her with men. And a lot, just a lot of pictures of her, a lot of pictures of the boy, a lot of pictures of her and the boy. Actually, the boy's probably older than five. He looks more like maybe seven or so. But I wonder where who was taking care of him when she was at the poker room and also in jail. Probably has some family member who watches him or something. I'd love to know more of the backstory on her. Because this is really kind of out of left field, all this stuff, if you think about it. They were just playing a poker tournament, and a guy at the table asked something very standard about showing hands, and she made that obnoxious comment to him. And then it escalated, and they probably were insulting each other back and forth. And then, okay, I mean that happens at the poker table, no big deal. Uh, but this doesn't seem to be, by the way, like a, a guy mistreating a woman at the table. And I know that happens. I know there are guys at the table who say inappropriate things to women. And 
I don't think much of those guys, and that shouldn't happen. And if you mistreat women at the poker table, then you're an asshole. And if I saw you doing it, uh, I wouldn't like you. But at the same time, there are women who also mistreat people at the poker table. There's women who mistreat men at the poker table. There's women who mistreat other women at the poker table. I've seen all of this. I've had women mistreat me at the poker table. (laughs) So this appears to be a case where she kind of got nasty with this guy for no apparent reason. And then regardless of what happened to be calling the police to get her buy-in back is just really weird. You might wonder, how did I find Krista Pryor? Well, she outed herself. She found out somehow about the tweet that Will Givens made, probably because it was the top article on Card Player. I guess the someone must have seen it and told her. And she responded to him. Those tweets, I don't know if they're gone, but I can't access them because her tweets are protected. But she did respond, and I can see what Will Givens wrote in response to her without seeing what she wrote. So she must have written something like that the facts are missing, and she was he, he doesn't have all the facts, something like that. Because he wrote back, this is on August 20th, whatever facts are missing, feel free to tell it here. I was just telling what I heard as I really wasn't paying t- too close attention to you all bickering back and forth. By the way, what's not true, what I posted. So she must have said, you, what we posted, a lot of stuff isn't true and you don't have all the facts. And he's like, well, okay, but what wasn't right then and what facts don't I have? So then she said something back, which I can't see. Then he responded, you never made the comment about showing your tits? Come on. The whole table heard you and the dealer. You caught us all off guard. This is how the post even got started. Now, if you were blacked out drunk or something, I understand, but don't be ashamed now. So she must have denied the tits comment and... He's like, no, we all heard it. There's no way. You're just lying now. And I believe him. Like, I don't think he's just making this up. He doesn't. I don't really know him, but he's not someone who has a history of, of lying or making things like this up. A very, very high chance his version of what occurred is what occurred. Aside from maybe missing a few things because he wasn't there. Like right at the table. Then she said something back that I can't see. Then he said back, I said I wasn't paying close attention to you all bickering back and forth, but I heard a few things and tuned out a lot, but you saying I would rather show you my tits and this is the closest you'll get to a woman and him saying, I'm good, you look like a tranny, all happened. And that was that she stopped responding to him. (laughs) So so that, that was that. Unfortunately, I cannot see any further responses. I wish someone had saved them. I went to go look on 2 plus 2. I'm going to try to follow her and see if she's foolish enough to accept me as a follower. I'd love to get her on here, actually. That would be great if we got her on here. But I have to think this is mostly true, or all true. Yeah, it was overheard from another table, but It sounds like it fits together, and it doesn't make sense why she would have called the police, and she never really fully explained herself. I'm guessing she has some problems. I'm guessing this wasn't just a one-off thing where she flipped out. 
And she probably has her stresses in her life. She's a single mom. Who knows if the dad's still in the picture. She may have just been going to play some poker. I could tell she's a big fan of poker from looking at her Twitter archive. So she probably went to go play some poker and relax and probably wasn't in a good mood. And somehow that guy irritated her and she made comments and it went back and forth and it got worse and worse. And I don't know. She didn't do anything horrible. It's just kind of more funny that she got herself arrested when she tried to use the police to get her buy-in back. We got to think someone like this has a lot of problems going on in the background. And I, I feel sorry for her son because clearly she has a screw loose. And if there's no, I don't know if there's no father in the picture. Maybe there is. Maybe the father has him half the time. But if, if this is the only parental figure, it, it can be tough to grow up that way. It can be tough to grow up with just one parent as it is, but to grow up with just one parent and have that parent be kind of crazy can be very difficult. And what what I've seen in, in situations like this, and I know I'm doing a lot of assuming right now, but what I've seen in the past of people I've known personally, kids that grow up in very unhealthy, dysfunctional parental situations go one of two ways. They seem to either get really screwed up and have a lot of issues that affect them their whole life, or they actually benefit from it where they see their parents as like an anti-example and really dedicate themselves not to end up that way. I've known people like that too, who have said, okay, my mom screwed up. I'm not going to be like her. My dad screwed up. I'm not going to be like him. I'm going to be different from my parents. I'm going to do everything I can so I end up better than they were. So sometimes it motivates the kids that their parents are screwed up, but a lot of times it just uh, gives them a lot of problems. More times than not, it's, it's, it's these kids don't end up very well, where they may have ended up just fine if the, if the family was normal. So it's, it's always sad when there's a kid involved and you see one of the parents is unstable. It, it's funnier when there's no kids involved. It's funnier when it's just one person acting nuts. When it's someone acting nuts who seems to be like a single mom, you think, okay, well, what about a kid? Oh, Blue's just a bad night. Wouldn't it be great if we got her on the show, though? But I will say she doesn't look like a tranny. I will defend her there. The, the picture I saw of her on Will Given's Twitter, if you want to look at his Twitter, it's at uh, high on 7 ife Kind of like High on Life, except he has a number seven instead of the L for life. High on seven Ife. She didn't look like a tranny in these pictures, but they were kind of distant, so it was hard to tell. But before I clicked on the picture, I I thought I was really going to see an ugly woman who looked like a tranny, but no. She uh, just looked like an average woman in her 30s to me. You never know what's going to happen when you go to the poker room. <laughs> Let's. Uh, some some people may ask also why why am I publicizing her name? It's because she publicized herself. She went onto Twitter and responded to him on his public Twitter. It's not like she sent him a private message. Like she responded to him publicly about you know, commenting on what happened. So I I found all this from her public social media that she made 
that she linked to this whole thing by responding to his account of the situation. So I don't think that's violating anyone's privacy at all. You shouldn't bother her or anything, but... I did throw a follow attempt her way, and I'm going to ask her, would you like to come and explain your side of the story on Poker Fraud Alert Radio? And I will let her give her side. She probably won't come on. Don't hold your breath, but you never know. 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355 is the number to the show if you want to get a hold of me while we're on the show here. You can also text that number. Moving on. The end of an era for poker stars. Mass multi-tabling has ended. One of the hallmarks of old-school online poker, and even to some degree current online poker, was mass multi-tabling of no-limit cash, or in some cases, mass multi-tabling of tournaments. And this would allow people to get tremendous numbers of hands in within a short period of time. This allowed some young players to become excellent players in a very short period of time because of the number of hands they would get in compared to live play, where it's all very slow. But before we go on with that, I'm going to take a call here from a caller into the show. Hello. Caller, go ahead. Yes. Hey, this is uh, Brett from Sacramento. I got a quick uh, question for you. Yes, Brett. What's what's going on? Uh, the uh, I'll show you my boobs uh, question. It's kind of a new, more of a newbie question. I was always the impression that a dealer at a table is not their only dealer, but they're kind of like a referee or almost a uh, like the head of the table that runs it. So, if someone makes a, a a comment like that to someone else, can a dealer like jump in and kind of like they're kind of like in charge or a referee where they kind of hold the security down and keep the peace? No, that's it's kind a, of a newbie question, but I throw it out there. Yeah, it's a good question, but uh, no, the dealer is not charged with that. Uh, the dealer is supposed to call the floor man over to referee if it gets out of hand. If there's just some people okay. kind of sniping at each other, uh, but it's not too bad. They, I, I don't usually see that happen. Usually when the dealer calls the floor, it's because someone's either really getting out of hand or someone requests the floor being called, or someone's attacking the dealer and bashing the dealer or saying nasty things to the dealer, then sometimes they'll, they'll call the floor. But in this case, uh, it wouldn't be expected for the floor to be called or for any interference in the situation. But then again, this is yeah. kind of a weird one. I, I've never seen anything like this before. I've seen I was wondering if like, the dealer jump in, uh, dealer jump in a little bit and they see something go down like that. If they have to jump in and kind of flex a little bit of authority, I'm not sure. I'm kind of curious on that. No, no, they don't. They don't even have authority either. The, the floor man has authority. The dealer, all they can do is report to the floor man what they see. Okay. Thank you very much. Okay. Thank you, Brett. Take care. Uh, bye. All right. So anyway, getting back to the poker stars topic. Poker stars was a site where there really was a ton of this multi-tabling at the cash games. And there were some players like Nananoko and others who really made a lot of money running uh, an insane number of cash tables at once. As I said, like 24 
which I think was the limit. This was only possible at slower-moving games like No Limit Hold'em. Uh, a game like Limit Hold'em, you could never do this because the hands move too fast. There's not enough thinking by each opponent as to what they do. So that makes everything go bang, 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 and the hand's over, so there's no way you could handle 24 at once. When I tried to mass multi-table, the most I could ever play at Limit Hold'em was 5, and 5 was even too much. Like, I would play 5 if all 5 were really, really good games, but otherwise I tried to bring it to 4 or fewer. The way I saw it, 5 was just... I kind of just couldn't do it and concentrate on all of them enough. 4 I could do, but I had to fully pay attention. There's nothing I could do in the background. I couldn't watch TV in the background or read the web in the background. I had to... 4 would take all my attention. 3 would take most of my attention. I could only do a little in the background. 2, that one, I had some leeway where in the background I could do things, and then 1, I would have uh, plenty of time once I'd fold until the next hand would start. But no limit, you can get in a lot more. But 24 is still insane. 24, you really have to be good at this, at jumping from table to table and concentrating and also not getting burnt out. Not get, that's what I found with the five-tabling of Limit Hold'em. It was like, it, it would burn me out. I didn't, I'm just constantly jumping between tables and making decisions and thinking it was, a, it was very mentally tiring. So 24-tabling No Limit has to be even more mentally tiring. And my hat's off to any of those who were able to do this. But this has been the case for many years on Poker Stars, and until just uh, a few days ago, which I think it was yesterday, you could still 24 table on Poker Stars if you wanted to at, ca- at the cash games. So shortly after the owner of Poker Stars, known as the Stars Group, which was formerly known as Amaya, just after they posted their financial results, which weren't all that good, they made this decision. They had not warned anyone this decision was coming. They just abruptly decided to make this decision and put it into the 24 tabling. So how many tables can you play at most on stars now? You can't play 24. You can't play 12. You can't play 8. You can't play 6. In fact, you can't even play the 5 that I once played. You can only play 4. Big difference. And this is actually one of the biggest changes that they've made in a very long time to Poker Stars. This really changes the game for a lot of people. A lot of people who were making their living on Poker Stars were playing relatively small stakes, but playing a ton of tables at once to get in so many hands that even the small stakes they were playing would still net them a nice profit. We once had on this show Dusty Schmidt, also known as Leatherass, and he used to do this. And he talked about how this actually affected his brain. That he actually had to take some time off for poker because the, the, the mass multi-tabling actually caused him some cognitive issues, which was an interesting discussion. But Poker Stars did not do this for health reasons for anybody. They did this for financial reasons. And this is one of many one of many tactics they're using to softly push out the pros there. They're becoming more and more pro-unfriendly. 
Because you're not going to see recreational players 24 tabling. This is a pro thing. Very rare to see a recreational player playing more than four tables. So that's why they decided they're not going to allow it anymore. On the PokerStars blog, which can be found on PokerStarsBlog.com, Severin Rasset wrote on August 20th, Maintaining a healthy ecosystem and, main, and balancing the interests of all our players is at the core of what we do. It is our responsibility as hosts to ensure that every player has a safe and enjoyable poker experience. Ever since the dawn of online poker, experienced players have experimented with multi-tabling and tested the limits of how many hands per hour they can manage. Of course, there's nothing wrong with this, and poker will always be about finding an edge over the competition within the rules of the game and the site hosting the game. So that where they're setting it up and going, oh, it's okay if you want to try to make money. It's totally cool you're testing your limits, but... But, here comes the big but. However, most of our players play on one table at a time. Without careful management, we risk ending up with an environment where the majority of players find themselves at tables disproportionately populated by multi-tabling players. This can lead to a difficult playing experience. Action at the tables can be regularly interrupted, and many players can feel outmatched and that their chances of winning are diminished. Now, that's the main point. It's not that people are slowing down. It's not that it's slowing down the game. In fact, I I would guess that these... Mass multi-tablers are still probably faster per hand than the Rex are who play one table. But the second part is really what this is about. That they determine that they don't want the seats hogged up by the same pros who are just opening up every table they can. That they want, if there are good, if there's going to be good pros on the site, they want to limit their presence. And what they've essentially done, if you take, if you think about it. A pro who is playing, let's say, 24 tables of 1-2, no limit, who's now restricted to 4, that's kind of like cutting him into a sixth of himself. Now it would require six of him to be what he was before. So this is a way they can reduce the number of pros at the tables without actually removing any pros from the tables. They must be very proud of themselves here that they're like, oh, you know what? We don't have to ban anybody. We just have to restrict how many tables they can open, and then their presence there will be cut by that percentage. So in this case, uh, people who are 24 tabling, their presence has been cut by like 83%. They went on to write, Last year we announced our intentions to test a table cap of six cash games in Italy, We have now carefully reviewed the results of this and are ready to announce the next steps. As of today, August 20th, players on PokerStars, and this is the extensions of .be, bg, com, dash, I don't know what dash is, D-E-S-H, D-K, E-E-E-U, U-K, R-O, C-Z, S-E-F-R-E-S-P-T-I-T. I know a lot of these. I don't know a lot of that. I don't know what, I think BG is Bulgaria. Desh, I don't know what that is. DK is Denmark. EE. Maybe Estonia? EU is, is obviously the European Union. UK is obvious. RO is Romania. CZ is uh, Czech Republic. SE is Sweden. FR is France. ES is Spain. PT, I'm not sure what that is. Not sure what PT is. And IT is Italy. We will be will be limited to playing four regular cash game tables at any one time at all stakes. Table caps for all other games, including Zoom, will remain unchanged. So tournaments, it's still okay to play more than four. And Zoom poker, 
can play more than four. Zoom is where the second you fold a hand, it moves you to another table. So you're not waiting for hands in between. They've decided not to cap these Zoom tables only for appearances. And, and what I mean by that is that there was an accusation last year when they were testing the table cap in Italy that this whole thing is meant to push people towards Zoom poker, which goes a lot faster and makes them a lot more rake. So in order to counter that uh, this is a way to push people to Zoom, they're they're not limiting Zoom, which is kind of weird logic, but I, I think what they're trying to say is like, Uh, we're not like they're not just saying, "Well, you have to play four on the site no matter what." And uh, actually, I'm not, now that I think of it, it doesn't really make any sense. <laughs> it made sense when I when I heard that, but now that I'm thinking of it, that would incentivize Zoom even more if you could play more than four. I, I don't know. Who knows what they were thinking? When we trialed this change in Italy last year, we chose a six-table cap as a hypothetical optimum number. We wanted to test the impact this had on our players. Those who typically played more than six tables and the majority who played only one, after careful review of the results over time, we now believe that a four-table cap, in fact, is the optimum number to achieve our goals. I think what they really mean is that they found that very few rec players play more than four. So they won't piss off any recs, but they're going to piss off a lot of pros, and that's the whole point. We want to maintain a sustainable poker ecosystem and a platform that players of all abilities are excited to play on well into the future. Attracting and retaining new poker players is crucial to the future of the game. By reducing the table cap from 24 to 4, we're reducing the number of multi-tabling players and increasing the number of more casual one-time, one-table players at each table. This should lead to increased win rates and on any individual table for the strongest players, while increasing the likelihood that the single-table players will meet others like themselves. They're, they're trying to make this sound good for the pros. Oh, look, look, your single-table win rate is going to be better. That, that's a small consolation if you were playing 24 tables before, and now it's down to four. And they're like, oh, look, I'm winning double what I was before at the, uh, the four tables I can play. Well, that doesn't help. He's, you're also only playing one-sixth of the table. You're still only winning a third as much money in that case. As a result, they'll have more chance of experiencing winning sessions and continue to play longer in the long term. So we're talking about rec players now. We're poker players ourselves. We understand that this change will have a very real impact on many players, particularly those of you who rely on multi-tabling as professionals. We haven't taken this decision lightly and are confident this is the right thing for the future of the game. More like the right thing for the future of their revenue. I hope that by focusing more on each table and winning more at these tables, you'll find a way to adapt and continue to be part of our community. And that's it. Now, how do I feel about this? Well, look, I'm kind of neutral on it. I see both sides of it. On one hand, if somebody wants to play a whole lot of tables, you know, restricting that, is that really the right thing to do? On the other hand, I do see their point. I do see their point is when they allow 24 tabling, you're basically allowing a good player to make 23 clones of himself to play at the same time. Think if Phil Ivey walked into your local live card room and then he cloned himself and 23 Ivies appeared and then 24 Ivies came in the room and sat at various tables. You you probably wouldn't be very happy about that if you wanted to win. If you just wanted to play with Ivy, you'd be happy. 
Jack Heffel would be thrilled. But if you wanted to win, and, and Ivy cloned himself, and 23 of his, him walked into the room along with the original Ivy, and they were all just as good as Ivy, you, you probably would be a little annoyed if your goal was to win that session. So this is probably how they see it, that these players are basically cloning themselves, and that it really, really increases the number of pros versus recs, even if the pro versus rec ratio as far as human beings on the site is not all that high. If the pros are playing 24 tables and the recs are playing one. So I see their point. And I see where they've got to go, look, we don't owe the pros a living. We just don't want them to have a dominating presence here. So I'm actually kind of a little more on PokerStars' side on this one. I would hate it if I was someone who was making my money this way. And these people weren't doing anything unethical. They were playing as many tables as they could. And why not? So uh, nothing against them. But I also see why, as the poker site operator, that this becomes unacceptable. And that this kind of artificially creates a pro-dominated environment, even if it's, by numbers, not really a pro-dominated environment. So I, I see their point. And you have to understand, I've said this many times, Poker Stars doesn't owe you a living. They owe you a fair game. They owe you any money you won. But they don't owe you the ability to make a living on their site. They're a business. They're trying to make money. As long as they act ethically, then that's all they need to do. There, there have been times they haven't acted ethically, but this is fine. This, they don't have to give warning. This they can change any time. And then you can say, okay... Star sucks now, I'm not playing anymore, or yes, I'm going to continue playing even though I don't like it as much as I did before. They've, they've been constantly tweaking the site and changing what was originally in place from the Scheinberg days. But it's a different time. It's a lot harder to make money in online poker for both the player and the operator than it used to be. So things have to change. I'm not even all that against this. I I understand it. And I never really thought of multi-tabling that way. I never thought of like... And they didn't say this, but I, I never thought of it being more like cloning yourself. And that if the rec players aren't really cloning themselves, that the pros are really outnumbering the recs by basically cloning themselves. Yeah, I didn't either. And it really makes sense what they did for yeah. them. Anyway, you know, yeah, it's a great idea. It was a great idea. I'll give them that. It was definitely a great idea. And but yeah, think about this. Think think if there are five. Just take five players, and let's say four are Rex, and and one's a pro. If the one pro is playing twenty four tables, and the four Rex are, or the one pro is playing twenty four tables, and the four Rex are playing one table then it seems like there's actually, of those five, it's actually more like there's six times as many pros as Rex when there's actually four times as many Rex as pros. So it really is a big impact. So when you think of it that way, it makes sense. And a lot of poker pros tend to be entitled like they're owed something. And they're not. They're not owed the ability to have the optimal situation for them to make money on a poker site. It's great if they have that, it's great if they use every advantage they can find that's honest. I don't have anything against that. In fact, I did that myself when I played. I still do that when I play. But 
you also have to know what you can expect. And I never get angry at things like this. I, I get a little frustrated, like, oh, this isn't as good as it used to be. But I don't get angry. I'll get angry if I don't get money due to me, or if, or if I get charged hidden fees, or if the, the payout processor skims money, or if someone's cheating and they're not doing anything about it, or if someone's botting and they're not doing anything about it. That I'll get mad about, because then they're not behaving in an ethical fashion. I'll get mad if they go back on promises, like they did with the Supernova Elite thing. Those are reasons to get mad. But they're operating the site the way they want. Beer and Poker says in chat, 24 tables is a lot, but going to a 4 is a huge change. Should make it 12, then 8, then down to 4, but 24 to 4 at once is ridiculous. I can see the point you're making here, but the truth is if you've decided the multi-tabling is excessive and is way excessive, then just taking it down all at once, I don't see a problem with that. Just taking it down to what you think is proper rather than doing it in stages. If, if the ultimate goal is to get down to four anyway, might as, well just, might as well just hit it down to four, especially since they don't really want to keep the pros. If, they'll be happy if all the pros say, you know what, if you're going to go to four tables, then I'm leaving. I'm going. Goodbye, guys. Don't try to stop me. And they're like, no, we're not. Goodbye. We're not, we're not going to try to stop you. Feel free to never log in again. That, that's their attitude towards the pros there. It is a huge change. I'll agree with that. But there probably are very few non-pros who play more than four tables. And Beer and Poker says nobody's playing 24 anymore without Supernova Elite. That's possible. That's possible that there's not much 24 tabling going on these days. But I think what there is going on, though, is there, there are people who have decided that they don't want to deal with the variance of upper or mid stakes and would rather just play a massive number of tables at lower stakes like 1-2 and end up with the same result. I know that was Dusty Schmidt's strategy, which was working for him until he had cognitive issues from it, but that is a lower variant strategy that some people use where they're not even trying necessarily to earn points. They're just trying to make reliable money without the variance. I don't think Stars is going to go back on this, by the way. I'm pretty sure this is a permanent decision. Beer and Poker says, I don't like how Stars makes massive changes all at once, eliminating things they should reduce stuff little by little. The, th- the thing is, they want you not to like it. <laughs> that's actually what they want. They want the pros to go, I don't like this. This is very abrupt and off-putting, and I'm leaving. That, that's really what they want. It's, it's, it's what I call uh, soft pushing people out. They don't ban anybody, but they just make things unpleasant for them. That's been the tactic at casinos recently, by the way. The brick-and-mortar casinos towards uh, some advantage players or even good basic strategy-type players. Some casinos don't want that type of business anymore, so they've been really reducing their comps and making the customer service worse for these players. They just, they're really trying to make it to where these players just don't want to come back. They're not banned. They can keep coming if they want, but they, they're trying to make it to where they're not feeling that welcome anymore kind of a similar concept. Just you, you decide there's a certain market segment you don't want and get rid of it. In fact, I, I had a discussion with someone today in the auto industry of uh, an automaker that does this, and that is Honda. 
Honda, and this is my experience with them from a while back. Maybe it's changed, but I'm guessing it hasn't. Honda does not like smart consumers. Honda does not want you to go in there with the knowledge of the very bottom price they're going to accept for a new car and haggle, haggle, haggle until you get that price. They don't want you as a customer. They're not going to ban you, but they're, they're going to make it very difficult for you to get there. They're going to get very rude. They're going to be non-responsive. They're, they're going to make your experience they're crappy. But if you're just the typical car buyer who walks in and buys something off the lot or uh, you know, just, just someone who, a casual car buyer who isn't the best negotiator, who think they've gotten a great deal because they, they got a, a little bit of money off uh, plus a few accessories thrown in, that's who they want. They want more of the simpleton average car buyer. They don't want the really, really smart, informed consumer. They don't ban the smart, informed consumer, but they make it unpleasant there for them. They, they get very unfriendly with them. In some cases, they get nasty with them. And it's because Honda kind of decided that's not really who we want. That's not the market segment they're going for. There's actually a, a philosophy that a lot of businesses have. I would say a lot, but some businesses have which is the 80-20 philosophy that 20% of your customers eat up 80% of your resources because they're difficult. And that the other 80% of your customers eat up the other 20% of your resources because they're easy. And that rather than trying to maintain 100% of your customer base, that even if the difficult 20% are profitable that they're too much of a hassle and they're much they're worth far less to you per customer than the 80%. So you should just focus on the 80% segment and really make life difficult for the other 20% for they won't want to come back. And that's uh that's one business strategy. It's a strategy also known as the pathological customer. Though I, I don't like that name because it makes it sound like the customer's the problem. Often that 20% of the customers could be right about problems the company has or issues the company has or things the company is doing wrong and that the 20% are the ones who speak up, which I'm part of. But there's some companies that have decided, hey, we, we don't want those people. We'd rather have the 80% who just take it and say nothing. And even if we're making money off the other 20%, it's not worth it. So th- this is kind of a version of that. PokerStar says we, the pros, yeah, we rake them, but we don't want them here. They, they end up beating the fish really fast. And they're just not worth it. We, we think they actually cost us money in the long run, so F them. And if they don't cost us money, they're, they're a headache. They make the games unpleasant for the fish. So, yeah, we don't want them. And they haven't wanted them for a long time. The new ownership has never liked the pros. I'll give Isai Scheinberg credit. When he owned PokerStars, he wanted PokerStars to be pure. He wanted it to be a place that was welcoming to the pros. He was not only a brilliant businessman, but he was a big lover of poker and a defender of the purity of poker. I'm not saying he was perfect. There were some issues that occurred there during his time that I didn't like. But overall, he was someone who didn't see it the same way as the current ownership sees it, where they just, the current ownership just wants to make money from it. It's, it, it's a cold business to them. They, they don't care about poker at all. Maybe some of the employees do, but the current ownership of Amaya 
the stars group, all they care about is it generating money. And that's it. And that's what drives their decisions. Okay. Moving along here. Another Nevada casino robber has met his doom in the process of uh, robbing a casino. The last one of these we had, to my knowledge, was in March 2019. But we had another one, and a man who was attempting to rob casinos in Laughlin has met his maker. It turns out that the robber here was not your typical robber. This guy was not only not a young man, he wasn't a middle-aged man. He was 69 years old. And had a history of bank robbery. And he ended up in a standoff with police. And I have to say, for somebody with a history of bank robbery, he, he definitely wasn't very smart in the way he went about this. Like the, So many times I, I read stories about criminals, and I'm like, these people are stupid. <laughs> these people are really stupid. Like These criminals are so dumb. It's, it's amazing to me. So this guy attempted to rob the Aquarius Casino, which is in Laughlin. Laughlin, for those of you that don't know, is 95 miles southeast of Las Vegas. It's on the Nevada-Arizona border. The city of Laughlin itself has almost no population, but it's in what's known as the Tri-City Area, or, uh, sorry, the Tri-State area, not Tri-City. Tri-City also, but the Tri-State area. There are three cities all close to one another, and that these three cities are basically what generate the employment in Laughlin. That's uh, Needles, California, Laughlin, Nevada, and Bullhead City, Arizona. They're all along the Colorado River. And... Laughlin is where the gambling is because that's the part that's in Nevada. It's, it's kind of where these three state borders all meet. Nevada, California, Arizona. Laughlin is sometimes described as blue-collar Vegas. It's not flashy. It is not catering to a high-end audience. It is on a river, which is mildly interesting. They do have a number of casinos there, though it's not huge. It's much smaller than Vegas. All the casinos are kind of in a line down the river, save for a few. The casinos have more of an old-school Vegas feel. You kind of feel like you were transported back to the 1980s. I mean, the machines in the casinos are newer, but the entire look and feel of the place appears like something that you're more used to from decades ago in Vegas. It's cheaper than Vegas. It's also got more of a laid-back vibe to it. Vegas can seem intense to some people. Laughlin is kind of laid-back. Some people find Laughlin to be kind of trashy. Some people find the employees there to be kind of trashy. and I kind of agree, but in my experience, is there. The river is interesting in that you can actually take a water taxi between casinos. 
it costs a few bucks, but you can actually get on a boat that takes you down the river between the various casinos on the river. It's about the same distance from L.A. as Vegas. It's slightly farther, but they're pretty close as far as uh, distance and time to get to them. If you ever want to see Laughlin and you live in Southern California, it's pretty much like a one-way trip. You're driving like 95 extra miles, but once you're there, then it's about the same as if you're still in Vegas. So if you want to add 95 miles to your trip, either to or from Vegas, from L.A., you can see Laughlin, though it's, it's not a thrill. As hot as Vegas gets in the summer, Laughlin's worse. Laughlin's actually hotter than Vegas, sometimes topping 120 degrees. Las Vegas has never seen 120 degrees. The hottest it's ever been in Vegas is 117 or 118, depending on who you ask, but it's never seen 120 in the recorded history of Las Vegas. Laughlin does see 120 occasionally in the summer. And it's consistently hotter than Vegas. A very, very hot place in the summer. It's tougher to rent a boat on the river than you would expect. One time when I was there, I'm like, oh, I'll rent a boat and you know, kind of go down the river. No, it was actually a lot harder. I would have had to go into cross over to Arizona. and the, the, uh, There were a few little outfits renting boats there, but the like the hours were pretty short. It was... I, I thought this would be something that would be easier. But there's like not a whole lot of activity in the river. There's there's one event they have every year. At least I think they used to have it. I don't know if they still do. Well, some kind of floating event in the river. I forgot what it is. It occurs in August or occurred in August. Aside from that, if you go there in the summer, you don't see much going on in the river. Harris Laughlin actually has a little beach, a little white sand beach right by the river. But you know, it's not like you see everybody swimming in the river or anything. There's really not that much activity in it. But there is still a river there. Anyway, back to what happened here. Earlier uh, in the day, let me go to the article about this. I had this all memorized before the show, but I forgot it. Uh, where did this go? So many windows open. <laughs> uh, let's see, it's not here. I have like a million windows open. I've lost it. Here we are. Found it. So, is this the article? There's a few articles about this here. I'm trying to find the best one. So what had happened was uh, at about uh, 1 a.m. Sorry, let me, let me go back before 1 a.m. Somehow, uh, like, like late at night, I don't know, 11 p.m., 12 a.m., the... Suspect went to the Golden Nugget, which is very near the Aquarius there. They're both along the Colorado River on Casino Drive in Laughlin. And tried to rob it. And he, he used the same MO. He laid a gun on the, on the counter 
kind of covered by a magazine, like an actual magazine, not a gun magazine, like an actual magazine. He kind of like could cover it up and put a gun under it and show the cashier and then demanded money. Now, there was some kind of ballsy cashier at the Golden Nugget who said, no, I'm not giving you the money. <laughs> so the dude's like pointing a gun at the cashier. The cashier's like, nope. And and he easily could have shot. Like there wasn't protective glass. Like they, he could have easily shot the cashier. And the cashier's like, "Nope, I'm not giving you money, not happening." So he bailed. <laughs> he just, he didn't use the gun. He got up and left. The smarter person would have said, "Okay, I'm glad I got away here. I'm I'm now going to leave town." The dumb person would then attempt to rob another place using the same mo. So at about one a.m. He showed up at the Aquarius and did the same thing. Put the gun on the counter with a magazine kind of covering it and demanded the money. And in fact, the, on 8newsnow.com, there's a picture of this, a few pictures. And you can see him. He has like a hat on. There's a female cashier and he's, he's pointing the gun at her kind of through the magazine. This was on August 19th, by the way. At the Aquarius, he got nervous. The cashier, I don't know if the cashier was agreeing to give him the money or not, but before that could happen, the cashier got nervous, or not, the robber got nervous, and thought a security guard was, was following him or, or watching him. So he quickly stood up and left and went to go get in his car and leave. So, on the way to his car, there was a security guard who followed him out there and confronted him, and he pulled out his gun and shot at the guy. That's when the trouble really began. So he shot at a security guard, and then ran to his car. And the police got there pretty quickly. In fact, uh, something I didn't know, uh, Las Metro for Las Vegas has a station there. Even though this is not Las Vegas, Metro has a station there. So Metro police officers were immediately surrounding his car, like very quickly. I don't know how close the station is, but they got there really quickly and he he didn't leave. And a standoff started. For six hours, where he was in his car, and they kept asking him to leave, and he wasn't getting out of the car. This guy was 69 years old, as I said, and he was probably aware of the fact that the jig was up and that, given his past convictions for armed robbery, that he was probably going to be in prison the rest of his life. He did attempt to shoot someone. He didn't hit anybody, but he attempted to sue someone, and that was much worse than just uh, trying to rob a casino. But trying to rob a casino and shooting at a security guard, when you're 69, you're probably never getting out of jail. And I think he knew that. So he's probably sitting in his car going, crap, crap, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? I don't want to go out. I don't want to spend the rest of my life in jail. What do I do? What do I do? Like He's just kind of sitting there like going like, kind of like wondering, okay, do I, do I end it all? Like I, he was probably had a lot of things on his mind. At that point, they tried to get him to come out. He would not come out of his car. Finally, at 7.30 a.m., 
after the whole night had passed, 7.30 a.m., he exited his car, but then quickly reached back into the back seat and grabbed a gun. And once he did that, I think you know what happened. Shots fired! Shots fired! (laughs) So he was shot dead. Police put six, six shots into him as soon as he grabbed that gun, which is very reasonable. When a guy who already fired at a security guard gets out of the car and then reaches in for a gun after a six-hour standoff, you don't stand around and wait to see who he's going to shoot at next. You put him down, and that's what they did. So he is dead. The name of this robber is Michael Todd Lopez. Same middle name as my first name. Michael Todd Lopez. He's from Lake Havasu City, Arizona, which is about 70 miles from Laughlin. And that's that. He has a long history of Robberies in his lifetime. He also had recently been charged with two counts of disorderly conduct in Lake Havasu on August 6th. So his life was really spiraling. So first he's charged with disorderly conduct. It's not clear why or what he did, but on August 6th he was charged with disorderly conduct in Lake Havasu where he lives and then uh, tried to rob, maybe to pay for his legal fees, I don't know, tried to rob casinos in Laughlin. When he failed the first one, he... Went the second one, then was confronted with by a security guard, shot at him, and then uh, once the police surrounded him, it was game over. He has convictions in Nevada and California for transporting stolen property, attempted robbery with a deadly weapon, robbery, attempted burglary, assault with a deadly weapon, and bank robbery. What a lovely guy. Isn't it a shame he's dead? So much like Bellagio robber Michael Cohen... He had a long criminal history. This was a career criminal. And society is much better off with him no longer with us. I still think it's funny that the first casino, that the cashier just said, no. Nope, you're not getting the money. I don't care if you've got a gun pointed at me. You're just not getting it. (laughs) It's like, okay, bye. It's pretty ballsy. That is pretty ballsy. Cashier deserves a raise for that one. I have to say, if I was working at the cage and the guy actually has a gun pointed at me and there's no protective glass that's bulletproof preventing me from getting shot, I'm I'm handing over the money. But at the Golden Nugget, they said no. Maybe in Laughlin, the cashiers are tougher. I don't know. There was some belief also that the March robber, Michael Cohen, of the Bellagio, also was going to be facing most of the rest of his life in prison. I think he was 48, and he already had various convictions for armed robbery and bank robbery, so it's possible he would have been away for something like uh, 20 more years or something if they got him another time. And I'm not talking before he actually used the gun to shoot at people. But that may be why he shot at the police, thinking that 
he's spending most of the rest of his life in prison if he gets caught. This guy at 69 knew for sure once he shot at the guard and that uh, it was either going to be death or prison. So it's possible he grabbed the gun just to have them shoot him. It's possible it was just a rash thought like, you know what, I don't want to be arrested. I'm going to go down firing and try to get away. It was some kind of move of desperation. Violent crime is not as common once people get over 35. It goes way down, the tendency to commit violent crime. There's some belief that it's from the decline in testosterone that males naturally have. But the tendency to commit violent crimes really decreases with age after age 35. And by age 69, it's, it's really low. So that's really surprising to see a 69-year-old having done this. But that's why usually the arrests for violent crime, especially ones that aren't domestic-related, I'm not talking about where a husband kills his wife or something, I'm saying just robberies and stuff like that, it, it tends to be committed by people under 35. Not all the time, but that's most common. 69 is very uncommon. I was very surprised when I saw the dude was 69. But he's not going to make his 70th birthday. But how stupid to go attempt to rob a second casino in the same small town as Laughlin right after failing after the first one. Wouldn't you think they're going to put out the word? In fact, I wonder if that's why the cops were around there so quickly. Because they he had just tried to hit somewhere else. Wouldn't you think that this is not the time to try again at a different place next door? Crazy. It's actually better that this guy got shot dead. I have to put money toward the trial and incarcerating him until he naturally dies in prison. It ended well. Ended well that he's gone. Alrighty. Moving on to our next topic. The Hard Rock Casino is going to be no longer as of February. You still have time. You still have about six months. But in about six months, there will be no more Hard Rock. They have changed their plans. They were going to permanently close the Hard Rock only for a short time while they were rebranding to Virgin Hotels America, or Virgin Hotels Las Vegas, not America. Think of the airline. The original plan was to stay open during most of the transition and then closing various parts of the hotel in what they call a phase closing for four months prior to their complete transformation of the Hard Rock into the Virgin Hotel Las Vegas. But they decided they don't want to do it. They decided that they're just going to do a hard shutdown of everything in February and then not open until Virgin Hotel Las Vegas is ready. 
I'm not sure if it's Virgin Hotels or Virgin Hotel Las Vegas. Hotels would be weird if it's one hotel. I'm reading hotels, but it's kind of weird. I want to say hotel. CEO Richard Bosworth, who calls himself Boz, which is kind of douchey to be honest, but Boz said this. We determined that a phased closing of four months followed by a total closure of four months was not efficient from a construction process, nor could we provide the hospitality service experience our guests deserve. Therefore, an approximate eight-month closure would be the most efficient and ensure a timely opening prior to January 2021. We might be ready in October, but construction is an imperfect process. Up until until early, early February 2020, it is business as usual at Hard Rock, Virgin Hotels Las Vegas promises to be one of the most exciting, vibrant, and anticipated properties to open in Las Vegas in years. I, I wouldn't say it's uh, exciting and anticipated, but it is changing from Hard Rock to Virgin. So they just decided, hey, screw it. Why, why have this phased closure where parts of it close, parts of it doesn't close? They say, you know what, just... We're just going to go from everything's open to everything's closed to everything's open again. That makes sense. The only problem is it does kill the momentum where there's eight months with nothing going on at that property. But I guess they figure the hard rock is kind of dying as it is. And they may have a different clientele anyway than the hard rock did. So they're not so concerned with keeping those people. Also, visitors to Vegas... Resorts like that, they, they're not coming every day or anything, so people don't really f- fall out of the habits. Even if they're closed for eight months, a lot of the people will not even be in Vegas during those eight months when it's closed. Or those that are won't forget about it or never want to set foot in Virgin just because the Hard Rock's not available during one of their trips. So they just decided that's better to do it that way. If you're interested in seeing the Hard Rock or going there one last time, you better get there before February when it will be closed permanently. It will open as Virgin Hotels Las Vegas, but it'll be a very different theme. It'll be at the same location, but look like a different place. They're not knocking it down or anything, but they're they're renovating it and changing the whole theme, and the whole Hard Rock theme will be gone. The Hard Rock does not have the best location. It's not on the Strip is the problem. And like many properties off the Strip, they're on Paradise, which is the next street over from the Strip, but it's not the Strip. So what happens when you have these off-Strip properties, it's, it's hard for them to ever really become equivalent to Strip casinos. And... Paradise, all the hotels on Paradise are kind of either more locals places or just lesser hotels. So Hard Rock, it was never quite able to become what the Strip hotels did, and especially now when the action really is on the Strip. You just don't have many people wanting to go down to Paradise. And I don't see this changing much when it becomes Virgin. I sometimes forget the Hard Rock's even there. If I'm driving down Paradise, I see it, but I don't really think of the Hard Rock. And if I'm driving on the Strip or near the Strip, I just don't see it because 
I, I just don't think of it. It's, it's not a property you think of unless you're passing by, and you're not passing by if you're not on Paradise, and there's not a whole lot going on in Paradise for, for tourists or you know, those who aren't locals. Paradise is east of Las Vegas Boulevard, which is the Strip. If you drive on one of the east-west streets in Las Vegas, like uh, Flamingo, for example... You go from Las Vegas Boulevard, you'll then pass uh, Coval, and then the next major street will be Paradise. Paradise is also starting to be towards the area that isn't as good. So that's another problem. The Hard Rock itself is actually quite close to UNLV. It is the closest casino to UNLV, being just directly west of it. As far as hotels near the Hard Rock, soon to be Virgin Hotels, Las Vegas, there's really not much. There's an Embassy Suites, there's Silver Sevens, Tuscany Suites, there's the Timeshare Wyndham Grand Desert, uh, there's the Westgate, which is the former Hilton, there is uh, the Mardi Gras, Hotel and Casino, the Renaissance, the Embassy Suites. It's a lot of really either non-casino properties or inconsequential casino properties on Paradise. Really the most consequential thing on Paradise is the Westgate. So this just isn't a place where there's going to be much foot traffic either. If you look at it on a map, you're going to see it's really nowhere near anything people would be walking to or walking from. I I think this is going to really be a non-factor when Virgin Hotels comes there. And I think the whole Hard Rock theme... Well, once kind of cool, like in the 80s and early 90s, I think that's kind of gotten stale, too. I think it's just something that doesn't excite people anymore. That's another problem. Is people people aren't going to go to Vegas and go, oh, man, i got to see the Hard Rock. Like most people aren't going to do that. Like I, I'm saying if you want to see it one last time or see it before it closes because you haven't seen it yet, I, I bet few of you, even if you're going to be in Vegas between now and February, I think few of you are going to rush down there to see it. They're going to shrug your shoulders and probably go, okay, well, whatever. It's gone. It just isn't an iconic property, especially now. Trey Risky, your thoughts on this? I pretty much agree. I think that, yeah, I think that it's, you know, it was the hard rock. I mean, maybe Virgin will do something cool, but it's certainly just has a targeted audience of people that were probably loyal to Hard Rock. I don't know how much they carry over to Virgin. Right, that's another problem, and they just don't have a good location. That's the problem. They're just not on the Strip, and they're not really walking distance from anything interesting there. So that's that's another problem. They're just not going to get foot traffic. It's just kind of a weird location. I mean, Hard Rock would always have bands. You know, they had Nobu there. Yeah. So, I mean, people would go for specific things, I feel. Yeah, they did. You know? 
And then when's the whole thing opening across in the wind, too? I mean, that's going to be new competition, too, for another part of town. Yeah, yeah, that's not near there, as I know you know, but for the listener, that's the, the what's opening uh, where they're doing the construction in the north part of uh, of the Strip, the Resorts World, which is across the street from the Wynn, a little further north. That, when is that opening? I kind of lost track of that. Yeah, and it's not close to it, but it's just another option for people to go that just spreads everybody out even further. Yeah. That is – I'm sorry. What were you going to say? No, I was just going to say, though, but, you know, obviously Virgin is a huge company, and they have, I'm sure, a huge database of people that are loyal to their brand, whether they fly on their airplanes or go to their hotels or do whatever they do. So I'm sure they'll find a way to kind of package things in to help drive their customers there. Yeah, they, they, might, uh, they might have some ways to get some people down there. Resorts World, by the way, is opening in late 2020. So that's a little while, but we're not super far from that anymore. We're a little more than a year away, it's looking like, unless there's some sort of uh, delay. 3,400 hotel rooms. That, that'll be a pretty big deal, though. That That's a risk. You know, that's that's in an area that right now only has the wind and, and not much else. And they're they're hoping that this will be a new happening part of town. But the wind isn't happy about it because now that create uh, creates competition directly across the street of kind of like the same class of hotel too. So they're they're very unhappy about that. But well, that, that's uh, that's the one that people are really anticipating. Not Virgin. People are going. When's Resorts World opening? That's going to be late 2020. We're looking at. In fact, Vegas will have a, a few new interesting things, I guess, by the beginning of 2021. We'll have this Virgin Hotels, uh, Las Vegas, replacing the Hard Rock. We'll have Resorts World. And then we will also probably have the Caesars Convention Center in operation, which will probably then house the 2021 World Series. I was really hoping to be in that new convention center next year for the World Series. I'm, I'm, I'm still kind of sad that I'll be at the Rio. When I left the Rio, I go, you know, it's kind of like saying, you know, kind of good riddance. I'm kind of sick of it here. It'd be kind of nice to have the change next year. New decade, new venue. But now it's looking very much like it's going to be the Rio again. The only good thing is, and, and someone brought this up to me. Someone said, do you really want to learn a whole new place? Do you really, you know, you have all your, you have such strong knowledge of the Rio and all its idiosyncrasies and like everything there is to know, do you want to have to relearn everything now? Don't you want to just stick with the familiar? And there, there's an argument for that too. But it, it would well, but still, the stuff you know is so bad. It's like yeah, well, so but why I, would you give a fuck? Well, no, because I know some things that kind of give me an advantage in some ways uh, because of knowing the Rio so well. I don't mean like a play. No, I know. I know what you're saying. I'm just saying, you know that the rooms there's going to be a problem with, and you know how far it is to walk from the front to the, and you know there's no food at night. Right, right. You know, it's like all the things you know aren't positive things. Right, and that's when I was getting really frustrated with the food situation there this year. I was thinking, like, thank God I'm not coming back here next year. And then, nope, I am coming back here next year. I'll tolerate it one more year. I lost seven pounds when I was there. In the second trip, I lost seven pounds. So maybe maybe it would be good if it stays at the Rio as long as possible. I'll lose, I'll lose some more weight. 
And you'll have your new uh, Smashburger manager there for you. That's right. I, I'll, I'll be able to utilize that Smashburger. All my complaining will not be for naught. I'll, I'll actually get some benefit out of it. I'll say, hey, is the assistant general manager here? Yes, I'm here. Well, guess what? I'm one of the reasons you're working here. Actually, that's not true. They, they made a decision to hire him before me, but they told me it was, it was complaints like mine that they put the guy in place, and it was my specific complaint that was the catalyst for firing the existing night manager. Okay. We will see what happens to Hard Rock. In the meantime, we'll talk about a different casino in Florida. It's actually a pretty big story that never got very much play. In fact, it got so little play that I even forgot to cover it last week. I meant to put it on the agenda, and I completely forgot. I know, and I knew you had tweeted something, too, and I was going to mention it, and then you got sucked into some other thing and yeah, I spaced on it. Right. I, 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 I tweeted it and everything, and then I forgot, totally forgot to cover it last week. But, okay, here it is. Eight casino workers have been charged with rigging gaming machines in a Florida casino to steal $5.3 million over a period of four years. It's a lot of money. So listen to this one. You may wonder, what do do I mean by rigged machines? And how did they steal the money? And how did they get away with it for four years? Well, I will answer those questions for you. So eight people who lived in the Miami area and worked at the Mikosuke Resort and Gaming Casino. It's really called that. The, maybe it's Mikosuke. But it's M-I-C-C-O-S-U-K-E-E. The Mikosuke Resort and Casino. Which is, I'm not sure if it's in Miami, but it's either in or near Miami. They have been busted for stealing over $5 million collectively. And they are being charged by the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Southern District of Florida. They've been charged with computer fraud, embezzlement, money laundering, making false statements to law enforcement. Those being charged, and I'll get to what they did in a second, are Michelle Alou, 41, Lester Lavin, 43, Yohander Methan, 42, I wonder if Johander Methan spent the money on meth. Wouldn't it be appropriate if Johander Methan was a meth addict? Leonardo Betancourt, 46. Maria del Pilar Alou, 39, I'm assuming is uh, the wife of uh, Michelle Alou. Michelle is M-I-C-H-E-L. I think it's, uh, could be Michael, but it's not spelled. It's, it's, I think it's pronounced Michelle, but it's, it's uh, male Michelle. Uh, this is a hard one to say. Honest Lady Virgil Hermida. Honest Lady. A-N-I-S-L-E-Y-D-I. Virgil Hermida, 30 years old. Milagros Marile Acosta Torres, 33. And Yusmeri Shirley Duran, 40. So here's what they were doing. This is this took place a while ago, from January 2011 to late May 2015. They were all working at the Mikosuke Resort. I don't care if that's how you say it. That's how I'm going to say it. And what they did was they was uh, 
Michelle Alou, Lester Lavin, Leonardo Betancourt, and Johander Melhin were uh, they, they hooked up one end of a wire to a device that was inside these machines, and the other end was on a middle surface in the machine, and this would make the machine believe that coins were being inserted. And it was just a way to just keep making the machine think, ding, 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 coins are going in, and it would run up a balance of credits. Then they would print a voucher. They wouldn't even play. They just hit the cash out button to cash out what they put in, which was really just nothing. They just did it with uh, putting in that wire to create the same register in the machine as, as it would have if a coin had been put in. So they'd rack up a bunch of fake deposits that way. Hit the cash out button. It would print a voucher. And then they would go to the automated machine to print to give them the cash without ever having to interface with any employees here who were not involved in the scheme. Apparently once in a while they cashed the vouchers with the cashier, but most of the time they went to the automated machine. The way they were able to do this without this being caught in an audit, because casinos do audit machines, and if it were seen that uh, something wasn't right here, that the money in that was actually sitting in the machine was not the same as what the machine was registering. They were able to clear the RAM of the machine through a hard reset process that completely wiped the history of those transactions because these were uh, employees that were able to open up the machines and do this. So basically, once it kicked out this voucher, they were able to hard reset the machine to where it didn't record that it ever generated this voucher. So that's why for four years they were just able to keep cashing out this money and it wasn't caught. And they stole $5.3 million from the Mikosaki Resort. These other four people, there were eight people arrested, so I don't know, maybe the other four who were arrested were accomplices who didn't actually work there. It appears that it was those four that I named that were actually the employees there. But there were eight people arrested and charged. Uh, the press reliefs from the U.S. Attorney's Office actually didn't mention what the other four people did, but they were all charged with money laundering. What was the money used for? They used the money to buy houses, investment properties, and vehicles. And they thought of the children, too, don't worry. They weren't that selfish. They, they also contributed some of the money that they stole to their children's college funds. <laughs> all for the children, all to get their children an education. It's, they're, they're fine people. It's not clear how this was eventually discovered. It went on for four years. I would have thought this would have been caught much faster because the casinos are constantly auditing everything. They have people that work there called night auditors that look for things like this. I, I'm not kidding. I once had a night auditor catch that... Uh, a $6 charge for the mini bar in my room was wiped off because it was erroneous. And the night auditor actually felt it wasn't erroneous and that I actually owed the $6 and, and uh, took $6 of reward credits out of my Caesars account. 
this really happened. And and I called up and I said, you know, this is only about six dollars, but it kind of pisses me off. Like, why did you guys just take six dollars from me? Like weeks later, and they said, oh, the night auditor found this and and showed that you got something in the minivar and didn't pay for it. I said, no, I. We went over this with the front desk. There was something wrong. The minivar showed me that I took something when I didn't, and they took it off. Yeah, well, the night auditor didn't think so. I'm like, no, screw the night auditor. I want, I want my RCs back. And they actually, they're actually fighting me about this, saying the night auditor made this decision touch, tough luck. I was really pissed that someone, like, weeks after the fact would go back and charge me six bucks over a minibar thing that happens all the time. And I, I honestly didn't touch the minibar. It was one of those dumb sensor things that got bumped or something. So... Anyway, these night auditors, in addition to for looking uh, looking for mini bar charges that aren't paid for, they usually look for things like this to where they can see if the numbers from all the machines aren't adding up to what's cashed out. Then they figure out what's wrong and where the voucher came from, and they they should be able to determine this pretty quickly. But someone was asleep at the switch there for four years, and they weren't tracking these vouchers well. And I think the problem was they were counting too much on what the machines were reporting. And they probably weren't looking at the vouchers that were being generated. And I don't know what finally made them do this after four years, but that, that's my guess is they were only going on what the machines were claiming they were making and losing. And if it all added up properly, then there was nothing to be concerned about. And they didn't bother to look at these cash machines or like, are there too many vouchers being printed? I think they were taking for granted that the vouchers could be printed and then the, the fact that they were printed could be cleared off, which is a pretty bad flaw in these machines that this could even occur. This, this shouldn't be possible. Everything should have a, a, an easy paper trail, which I thought they did. This is a new one on me, that this could even happen. I'm also surprised it involves coins because I don't even see coin slots in machines anymore. I see dollar bill slots, which can also which also double as a voucher slot, and a slot to insert your player's card, and that's it. Maybe the Mikosuki they they had coin slots at least in the first half of the 2010s. That's the, that's the most surprising part here is that they had coin slots. So it just triggered coins, not dollars. That's what it says here that they that it was a. It was a wire that was then connected to a metal surface in the machine that was simulating uh, what would happen when a coin gets dropped in. A little bit similar to what phone hackers used to do with pay phones in the 1980s, where it was found that, of all things, a uh, Radio Shack tone dialer, and a Radio Shack tone dialer is exactly what it sounds like. It's just a, it's just a device that you could buy at Radio Shack back then that... Uh, just makes touch tones. It does nothing else. It just makes touch tones on a little speaker. I don't even know what practical purpose people really bought it for. Because like a phone, a regular phone can just do that. But they sold these little tone dialers at Radio Shack, and someone found that by replacing one of the crystals there, you could make it make the identical sound that payphones would make when quarters were dropped in. Because the payphone would give itself a signal. You drop a quarter in. And it would make a signal to itself, just to like beep 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 beep, like a soft signal in the background that would tell the phone. It would basically be telling itself that a quarter's been dropped in. So when it would hear that signal, it would give credit for a quarter. 
So what phone hackers figured out is by replacing the crystal, which was easily, uh, you can buy that at Radio Shack as well, replacing the crystal in the tone dialer, that the tone dialer could make that exact same tone and could be programmed to simulate that tone very easily. And you could just walk up to a payphone and press the button and it would go beep, 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 and it would give you credit for putting in a quarter. And you could even use that to make like international calls. Like you want to make like a $20 international call across the world. You just keep hitting the thing, beep, 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 and, and, and it, it, the phone gives you credit for having inserted the money. So I think it's something similar to that. Now, in, in what I was talking about with the tone dialer, you don't actually, you're not messing with the equipment of the phone. You're just actually playing that into the phone. But I think this is a similar concept to where a coin dropping in creates some kind of charge, like some kind of electrical charge that they were able to simulate with this wire. And it required access to the machine, but they were employees and could open it up. And then they just made the machine. These employees probably didn't have access to the cash box, so they couldn't just drop cash in and take it back out. So this is probably the way they could do it. These were probably techs there who could put this wire in and and, and make that happen like that, but they couldn't uh, actually access any cash dropped in. So that's what it seems like they were doing. The only thing that's strange to me is that coins were involved. Because I would think even in 2011, these machines weren't taking coins anymore. But maybe they were at the Mikosaki. But they're actually being charged in federal court. And given the amount of money that was stolen, over $5 million, they could be seeing some serious time for this. This also isn't a large place. I'm looking at a picture of the Mikosaki. And it says Mikosaki Indian Gaming. And it does not look like a very big hotel. Like It kind of looks like the size of like a Hampton Inn. This is not like Caesars being stolen from. I mean, this is a, a place you'd think they'd notice if they're losing an average of like one point something million per year through this scheme. I think you had some idiots involved in the auditing department that weren't doing their job very well. But that part, I'm not seeing here. Security. I mean, wouldn't you think that if these guys have to sit there with, you know, how many quarters is that? Well, it wasn't five million. Well, it wasn't quarters, but it was simulated quarters. But yeah, I see your point. I see your point. They're still putting something in, pinging it, right? Right. They, They probably did this if they were if they were. Uh, working on the machines, like if, if their job was to work on these machines, I'm assuming what they probably did is they acted like they were pretending like they were fixing the machines or whatever. But you're right that it, this would take a lot of time to do. Just beep, 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 beep for the, for the quarters. Like a, you'd think, like they, I guess per quarter it would be 20 million of them. I don't know if they were simulated quarters, but I don't think nobody uses those silver dollars anymore, so it couldn't be those. So I guess it, it was quarters. So. Like, they really simulated the dropping in of 20 million quarters over four years? That's that's a lot. But I guess if they thought it was free money, they were willing to do it. So, yeah, it is a question how they were doing this without being noticed, given the amount of time it probably took. $5.3 million for, for a period of uh, January 2011 to May 2015, about almost four and a half years. And... Yeah, it's still not made clear. It's still not made clear how this was eventually caught. 
I'd love to know that. I'd love to know if someone got fired for like not noticing this for four and a half years. Like not not that they were in on it, but just like an idiot who was supposed to be watching for things like this. And like, uh, boss, I I have some bad news. You know, I've been auditing our machines all this time and auditing our finances. Uh, some people have been kind of stealing from us for like four and a half years, over five million bucks, and I never noticed. And the boss is like, oh, you know what? I was wondering why we're making zero instead of five million dollars over the past four years. Ah. Figured it out. No wonder we're not making money. Well, that answers a few questions. How does a small place like this, how can that happen? I've seen other businesses where this has occurred before. There's a a comedy club in Hermosa Beach, California. It's in the L.A. area near the coast. It's called the Comedy and Magic Club. It's a pretty well-known place in that area, and a lot of big stars in comedy have performed there. In fact, a lot of big comedians would test material there. I don't know how it came to be the location a lot of them went to, but like like Jay Leno would have a weekly show there when he, when he was really big. So here, here Jay Leno is huge, and yet you could actually see him at the Comedy and Magic Club in a small venue every week because he's kind of like testing material there. So it was a very well-known and liked place, but somehow it was just losing money and almost about to close. And it was small. It was a small place. And finally, the owner one day goes, you know what? We're busy all the time. We, we sell out every night. We sell a lot of drinks. We're not paying the comedians very much. So why are we not making money? And then they finally had the idea to take a look at the one person they had in charge of their books for years. And it turned out it was a woman with a gambling problem who was just embezzling it all. So she got arrested and all that, but they were like on the verge of closing when they finally got the idea, hmm, maybe we should look into the one person we entrusted with all our finances all this time. But like, I wondered, how do they go all these years and they're like not making money when every sign shows the business should be making money? It's a small place. Like, I, It's one thing to embezzle money from a, a huge business that may not catch it, but when the place is smaller and you embezzle a massive sum of money that's going to make them fail, like how, how, is, how is the owner not noticing that? That really seems like... It's almost like the full tilt story of what, they, what Howard is claiming, that they just trusted Ray Bittar too much and didn't ask any questions, which I don't fully believe. That, that's their story. That's what uh, Howard Letterer will tell you, is that they just thought Ray Bittar was doing everything and handling it all right, and only, only at the very end did they learn that Ray had stolen all the money. Um, anyway, fascinating story to me. And really hasn't been covered very much. Even by me. Even I neglected it. But now I've made up for it. And I covered it here. Final topic in what has been a short show. It's going to disappoint some people. Final topic. I'll look into possibly making the Colonel Faberchamp call. You know what? Before this final topic, I'm going to play you, speaking of Colonel Faberchamp, I'm going to play you the Hero Poker ad with Colonel Faberchamp that aired only once and got a bad reception from those listening live. 
I remember they were bashing it in the chat room and we were going, what the fuck is this thing? And that it was too long. And uh, Micon definitely didn't have the patience for it. But uh, to set this up, because we're, we're, this is an ad that ran eight years ago and won't make sense unless you know what the ad is trying to convey... Hero Poker was on the Merge Network. The Merge Network was a collection of skins that fit into the network. They were one of them. And a problem was some of the skins were shady or had terrible customer service that they basically handed out a skin to anyone who wanted it with very little oversight, very low standards for who they give a skin to, and that if you were on a lousy or crooked skin into Merge, that you had a horrible customer service experience. So... The the point of this commercial was not to promote the Merge Network, but it actually was kind of to say, hey, a lot of the skins on this network suck. Here's one of the few good ones. That's, that's what the point of this commercial is that is done in a humorous, or at least attempted to be humorous, fashion with some of your favorite characters from my prank calls here. Keep in mind it is from eight years ago on a, for a defunct site. And keep in mind I'm playing this only because we played our uh, Hero Poker intro tonight. So why not? You know, other sites, other radio shows, they advertise for existing companies. We only advertise for companies that have long been gone. That's how it works on this show. So here, here is the ad. Enjoy. Hello, Colonel Nigel Fabersham here. I decided it was right time to explain why you should break it, Doc, and create yourself a Hero Poker account. As you may or may not be aware, Hero Poker is a skin on what is known as the Merge Network. When you sign up for Hero, you don't play solely against their users, but rather against everyone on the entire network. Now, if you are interested in playing on the Merge Network, you might wonder why one would bother to give the nod to Hero Poker, as opposed to the myriad of other skins that offer the identical games. It's important that you trust the sites that you play on, otherwise you have situations like what occurred with Full Tilt and Absolute Poker. The problem is on the Merge Network, it's rather easy to get a skin, and they don't exactly put you through a stringent screening process, as I'm going to demonstrate right now. Merge Network Administration. May I help you? Hello, Colonel Nigel Fabersham here. Can you explain to me the requirements and application process for obtaining a skin site into your online poker network? Yep. Y'all got to have a beaten pulse and one of them email accounts. Oh, and you got to have Microsoft Paint to make them their graphics on your site. Splendid. Indeed, I meet those requirements. Can you sign me up now? Sure thing, mister. One merge network skin coming right up. Would y'all like some fries with that? Oh, bollocks. So, as you see, starting your own merge network skin is easy-peasy, and anyone can do it. So that means you have to be careful who you're dealing with when you play on one. Hero Poker has the best support and the most accessible management of any merge skin. How do I know this? Because the bloody owner posts frequently on this site, and he even listens to this godforsaken radio show in its entirety. The chap is the epitome of accessible. Allow me to demonstrate what occurs when you call the customer service line of one of the other skins on the Merge Network. Hello, my friend. I am welcoming you to the customer service line. How may I help you? Hello, Colonel Nigel Fabersham here. 
Your recent promotion promised me $500 bonus for my initial deposit, but upon making the deposit, I do not see the bonus in my account. Oh, please hold, my friend, as I take to be examining your account. Thank you for holding for the account examination. My friend, you'll be inquiring about the $500 initial deposit bonus. The $500 bonus is a match bonus up to 100% of your initial deposit. Is there anything else I can do to help you with my friend? You haven't answered my question in the slightest. I called up because I was promised the bonus you speak of, I made the bloody deposit as required, and the bonus is nowhere to be found. I'm up the spout with frustration here, and I need some answers pronto. Oh, please hold, my friend, as I probe your account for further examination. Okay, my friend, I have fixed your problem. The bonus is now on your account. Thank you, kind sir. Your help is much appreciated, and, uh, um, uh, sir, I don't wish to rake over old coals here, but I'm looking at my account, and I don't spy any bonus there. Oh, my friend, you must believe that the bonus is on your account. The bonuses I put on are like the great Hindu god Shiva and Vishnu. You cannot see them, but you must believe they are really there. Hindu gods? Shiva and Vishnu? Have you gone mad? This is completely preposterous. I demand to speak to a manager at once. Hold on, my friend. I will be conducting you with manager John Smith. Oh, it's about bloody time. John Smith, a good American name. I'm sure he won't put me through this Punjabi nonsense. Thank you. Please hold, my friend, while you are being transferred to manager Smith. Hello, my friend. This is Manager John Smith. How may I be helping you? Oh, bollocks. So, as you have seen, contacting customer service with any sort of problem is as useful as carrying coals to Newcastle. It'll leave you as drunk as a lord with frustration. On Hero Poker, if you have an issue, you don't need to get your knickers in a knot. Simply bring your issue to Hero Poker CEO right here on donkdown.com, and you'll get your problem solved lickety-split. This gentleman deserves our support, and I, for one, am glad to give it to him. Hero Poker, your satisfaction guaranteed, or... Wait, wait, hold on, hold on, you can't say that. And who the bloody hell are you? Oh, this is Alvin Finkelstein, the dock-down attorney and retainer. I have to advise you that you can't make implied or direct guarantees as to the performance of our sponsors, as that puts us in a situation of third-party liability. Well, that's a bunch of live-in chips. I'll very well guarantee what I damn well please. No, no, I'm afraid you can't do that. I've been granted ultimate creative control of this radio show, and I will remove any material that's unsuitable for the air. You will do no such thing. Hero Poker, your satisfaction guaranteed, or your... You don't fuck with Finkelstein. Please support our sponsors. Thank you. Ends with poor Colonel Faberstein being gunned down by Alvin Finkelstein. You know who knew that Alvin had that in him? That was our six-minute ad for for Hero Poker that I played once on Donk Down. It actually it actually took some effort to make this thing. Uh. 
Okay, let's go to our final topic here. Trade risk, you still with us? I am here, but I'm going to be done real soon. Now you're going to be done. Okay, well, we're, we're going to be done soon. I got an early morning. Okay, we're, we're going we're gonna to be done soon. I, I have an early morning, too, but that's not the reason. I just I went through the agenda, and I'm like, you know, there just isn't much to talk about this week. And it's only been six days. It's a, we had one more day. I bet all the big news is going to happen tomorrow. We only have six days. Next week, we will be on a week from today, Thursday, uh, April, uh, April, Thursday, August 29th, 2019. And we should stay on Thursday for a while. I, I just keep wanting to go back to Wednesday. We just never make it. So I, th- I think we'll just be on Thursday for a while. Just keep checking uh, Twitter.com slash Poker Fraud Alert for our schedule for when our next show. Would be, but we, we, should, we should be pretty regular. We should be pretty regular every Thursday or so, around eight thirty, nine, whatever, Pacific time. Have a free roll. You know how it is. It's been seven and a half years. You know how it is. Okay, final topic, whether Trader Risky makes it through the topic is questionable, but we will attempt it. Final topic, run at once poker now actually has resizable tables. Can you believe it? I can't. I can't believe that Run It Once Poker, the site that was going to be a game changer for online poker everywhere, the site that was promised years ago by Phil Galfon to basically become a replacement for poker stars, a site that would get everything right and nothing wrong, a site that was run by poker players for poker players, those that understand poker players, those that understand the delicate balance between the recreational poker player and the pro poker player and want to be something for everyone, unlike greedy poker stars, this was going to be a game changer. Except it kind of took a very long time to launch, and when it did, it was full of bugs and had no tournaments and had no resizable tables and was a ghost town and had hypersensitive customer service and had high rake and... There's really no reason to play there. Oh, 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 okay, that's a game changer, a game changer. And then, but 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 hold on. When people gave their feedback that they were none too happy about the lack of multi-table tournaments and the lack of resizable tables, basic features that have been part of online poker for the last 16 years, Phil Galfon said, "Don't worry, we know. We're working on it. It'll be done soon." And then time passed. And time passed, and time passed, and it just wasn't coming. It just wasn't coming. And finally, finally, today it has been announced, or maybe yesterday. I shall say this week it's been announced that finally they have... I know you're excited. They finally have resizable tables. They do. The resizable tables have come. I've heard there was a secret card that David played and it pleased the Lord. Yep. But you don't really care for music, do you? Goes like this the fourth, the fifth, the minor fall, the major lift, the baffled 
Hallelujah. Hallelujah, we have resizable tables. Hallelujah, the sight can take over the world. Hallelujah, Phil Galfon has delivered. It's only been what, three years. <sighs> okay, let's break this down here. This project has been a disaster. It's been an absolute disaster. They've completely done everything wrong. They have made every every error they could make in the process of creating a software product. This was announced, this poker site was announced almost three full years ago with a post called A Poker Site Should, starting with A Poker Site Should Value Poker Players. It should value the casual player for the money he's willing to put on the line to play, uh, it should value the enthusiast and semi-professional for the liquidity they provide for growing the game. It should value the professional for embodying the dream that brings many people to poker. Blah, 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 blah. And then they, he went through this whole long idealistic essay that was very inspiring, to be honest. And I, I'm not being sarcastic here. It really was inspiring from a guy who seemed to get it about what a poker site really should be like. Your faith was strong, but you needed proof. You saw her bathing on the roof of beauty. Wait a minute, what is this? You saw her bathing on the roof? This is sounding creepy. Okay. I, I thought this song was going to be something different. But anyway, hallelujah. They finally have the resizable tables. But how did we get here? How did we get here to where we're celebrating resizable tables three years later? I've been thinking about this a bit. This whole Phil Galfon and Run It One story is fascinating to me, even though I cannot play on there because it's not for Americans and never will be for Americans. We just aren't allowed on there for legal reasons. But why am I so fascinated with it? It's it's because it really is a look into a poker player who thinks he can do something successfully because he's been successful at poker. But it goes beyond that, and I've been thinking about this recently. Phil Galfon has really lived a charmed life. And I'm being serious here. I'm not being sarcastic. Phil Galfon, if you think about it, has had a very nice life. He came into poker pretty young and was immediately successful, rose up the ranks quickly, kicked ass, won all kinds of big money. Everyone looked up to him. Everyone admired him. People got to know him in the poker community. He has a naturally agreeable personality, a guy you can't help but like, a guy it's hard to say anything bad about, a guy who just, when he speaks, you just want to be his friend. And I have to admit, I'm not that person. I am someone who can rub people the wrong way. I am someone who can piss people off. I am someone who can offend people. I am someone who is polarizing. Phil Galfon is not polarizing. He's the opposite of polarizing. He's just a nice, easygoing, agreeable guy who just won at every stage in poker. Even when he tries something new, like in 2018, he tried to play 08, which he hadn't really played before, and just learned it very quickly before trying a 10K event on the fly and then wins it. Why not? Why not win an event you just learned against some of the best players in the world? Why not just beat them all because... You're Phil Galfon, that's why, because it just works out for you. 
just everything you do is right. Your luck is always good. Your life is charmed. And again, I'm not being belittling or sarcastic. I'm being honest here that he's really had a lot of good fortune, a lot of which he created for himself. I'm not saying this is just some lucky asshole. He has had a very charmed life. Made a lot of money, has a lot of admiration. He's one of the few people in poker that, at least prior to this whole run at once debacle, no one had anything bad to say about. And he even married a hot chick who was an actress and model. And didn't just marry some gold digger who wanted his money, but he married a hot chick who seems to, from what I can tell, really care about him. How sweet is that? You not only get a hot chick to marry you, but she is really into you too. But you know, many years ago, I think in the 1970s, Tommy Lasorda, manager of the Los Angeles Dodgers, said... The worst thing about success is that it does not prepare you for failure. And I think that applies here. Where has Phil Galfon failed prior to this in his life? I don't mean has he ever failed in anything. I mean, anything major or semi-major in his life, has he failed? And I, I haven't seen it happen. It seems like one success story, one happy story after another in his life. And while that's a great way to live, and it's great that he's had all that, the problem is that when you are running that well in life, you sometimes are not preparing yourself for eventually failing, nor do you know how to handle it when that happens. And you get to believe that everything will just magically work. Everything will just work out. Everything will just end up okay. Not just okay, but great. And sometimes this can lead you to approach something with a lack of preparation. Because when do you prepare for something? When you fear that if you don't prepare, you're going to fail. But if you're so used to succeeding, if you're used to just everything working out somehow, then you're not as cautious. And that's when you're not prepared for failure. And then when failure occurs, sometimes you can be in denial that you're not failing, you're just on the way to success. Before I was a poker player, I worked in software development. I have a master's degree in computer science. I worked in the software industry all the way through 2003, which is now a long time ago, but in 2003 I was in my early 30s. That's what I was doing with my life before I started playing poker. And I can tell you, that software development is much more than just coding. And if you just put a bunch of coders in charge of developing a software product, it will typically be a failure, especially if there's a lot more aspects to the product success than the proper coding of it. And this is definitely true when it comes to a poker site. There are many aspects of creating a working poker site a successful poker site, a lot more than simply hiring good coders. And it seems like Phil and the people working for him never understood this. There have been failures in pretty much every aspect of this project. 
there is a marketing failure. They did not market it well at all. They had no marketing plan from what I could tell, other than just Phil's a well-known player, people follow him on social media, and, oh, we're going to try to get streamers to play on Run at Once, and people will watch the streamers play and want to come over and play. That, that was their marketing plan, which uh, there's some, I guess, some okay ideas in there, but that can't be the entire marketing plan. You need more than that. You need to be able to attract fish. You can't count on these streamers to do it because the streamers really won't have a site to play on. If it's a ghost, if it's a ghost town, if there's nobody there, then the streamers have nowhere to play. They're not going to play. It's a chicken and egg problem. You can't have streamers playing on your site bringing other people if there's no people already on the site to play. So marketing, they fail. Market research, which is different than marketing. Market research, they completely failed. They did not understand the potential customer. They didn't understand the potential recreational customer. They did not understand the professional poker player customer, which is surprising given that that's where Phil came from. The problem was that Phil wasn't in that world anymore. And I think he forgot where he came from, as cliche as that sounds. What I mean by that is that if you're grinding online poker every day, and then you are in charge of creating a poker site, if you go directly from online poker grinding to creating a poker site, provided you're not like completely out to lunch, you will create the poker site the way that you as a former online grinder would have wanted the poker site to be. You'll think of yourself as a customer of that site, and you'll probably come up with some good ideas in creating that site because you know as a longtime online poker grinder what makes a good site and what doesn't. I think Phil kind of forgot that. He was once an online poker grinder, but he hasn't been for a very long time. And being like a nosebleed stakes player is not the same as being an online poker grinder. So I think he was out of touch, and I think he didn't understand the market. But even if you do understand the market, you need to do market research. You need to know what the current crop of customers that you're going to be offering your product to, which in this case would be non-U.S. online poker players, what they want, what the recreational online poker player wants, and what the professional online poker player wants. And then try to serve them both as well as you can and, and craft a site around that. But it doesn't appear they didn't need market research. It just appeared that they had a bunch of what they thought were innovative ideas. And, hey, we're just going to throw these all together in a site. And everyone's going to want to come because, hey, Phil Galfon is in charge. Why not? And, hey, our, our site's so innovative. It's, everyone's going to want to come play here. So they didn't do any market research about what people really wanted. They just decided for everybody what they want, which is a mistake. You never do that when you come up with a new product. You, you don't decide what the people want. And I've seen this mistake many times in many industries about, about companies deciding what people want, not figuring out what they want. Now, there is such a thing as achieving innovation and bringing something to the people that they would want and don't know they want it yet. But you have to still do market research and figure out that this is something that would be appealing. I'll give you a perfect example, one of the most important inventions of the 2000s. The iPhone. Think of what phones were like before the iPhone, the first smartphone. Yeah, you could get on the web with this horrible text interface that was mostly unusable, and most people didn't use it. But the iPhone was the first smart device. 
handheld smart device that you could use and browse a web that looks like the web that you see on your computer. The second I saw the announcement for the iPhone, I knew it was going to be a tremendous success. Why? Because it was very, very easy for me to relate to. Oh, look, I can pretty much do what I do on my computer with web browsing on my phone. Wow, that's a tremendously good idea. This looks great. This is what I've been waiting for. And that's what everybody else thought when they saw it. Now, I will admit I wasn't actively thinking at the time, like, oh, wow, I wish I could browse the web normally on my phone. But once I saw it, I said, oh, yeah, that's great. Had they done market research with me, hey, does this appeal to you? I would have said, hell, yeah. So so would pretty much everybody, and I'm sure that's what they did. And the product was a wild success. You can't just innovate for the sake of innovation or for egotistical reasons that you just want to be an innovator. You can't innovate just because you think it's cool or you want to be different. You innovate because you want to bring something to people that they will want. Plus, you can't substitute innovation for the basics. So if you bring something new and interesting to the table, but the basics around the problem suck, or not the problem, the basics around the product suck, then the product overall sucks. You need to have good basics of the product. And then if you want to innovate on top of that, that's great. But it can't be just innovation and the basics suck. So these are all things you need to consider during the requirements phase, which can't be skipped. You've got to think of the requirements. You have to think of what do I absolutely need? What do, what will the customers want, which you find out from market research? And then what what things do I absolutely have to have? What are the must-haves in this product? What are the building blocks of this product? And then what what uh, what other things would we like to on top of that? That's the requirements phase. Then there's the development phase where there needs to be proper management of those developing it. Priorities need to be established. Timetables need to be established. If the timetables aren't being met, then that needs to be dealt with. All these things weren't done. None of these things were done. They were just haphazardly throwing together a product and just hoping everyone's going to love it. And that's not how software development works. They were building a complex piece of software, a poker site, from scratch, without a real marketing plan, without market research that I could see existed. They did not do any kind of robust quality control, which is another important piece of software development. You have to do quality control. You have to have extensive testing. You sometimes have to pay testers. You can't just roll something out and go, oh, it's in beta. You guys are the testers. Well, that's nice in theory, but that's often a mistake because if you roll out a terrible beta, then no one's going to want to use the product. It's never going to get past beta, and if it does, no one's going to want to use it. You you don't want to drive out the few really interested people you have by releasing a terrible beta product. And that's what they did. Well, you say, well, then how could they test it? If there's no, no beta, how can they test it? Well, I didn't say there should be no beta. I said what they should do, what they should have done, is have extensive testing and actually hire testers. And I don't mean hire expensive 100K a year testers. I mean 
go on 2 plus 2 or wherever. And 2 plus 2 is very supportive of them, by the way, including Mason himself. Go on 2 plus 2 and say, hey, uh, we're going to run play money on here. And we'd like to hire people to play play money at $10 an hour and just, just report to us whatever bugs you find. Just report to us whatever you find. Maybe even give a bounty on every bug found and every legitimate bug or problem found. Give a little bonus. I don't know. I'm just brainstorming. Something like that. And then you have a group of people that's playing it for hours and hours every day. Just play money. So there's no money on the line. So if it crashes or whatever, nobody needs a refund. It's just they're playing play money to see what works and what doesn't and what can be approved. Pay these people something nominal. There's plenty of broke poker players who'd be happy to do this for 10 bucks an hour, 15 bucks an hour, or whatever. And then you catch all the bugs before you release it. Then you release it in beta. That's when you release in beta. You don't release a piece of crap and call it beta. But that's what they did. So they, they didn't know what to do as far as testing. They didn't understand a testing process. They didn't understand a, uh, an exhaustive testing process. They didn't understand hiring testers. If they did, they didn't do it right. No marketing plan. No market research from what I could see. Poor understanding of what people wanted. So what, what did they release? They released something... Anonymous tables, which people don't like. These silly avatars that change emotions based on your play style, which is awful. All that does is mock the players playing on the site. They thought that was innovative, but that's a dumb thing to have. They had no tournaments, which is a huge mistake. This is how Poker Stars succeeded back in 2003 or late 2002, whenever they introduced it, was why they had tournaments. They were the first site to have tournaments. That's why they were so successful, because they learned that tournaments drive the cash games, not the other way around. You can't launch a site in 2019, 2018, whatever, with with no tournaments. It's insane. That was established 16, 17 years ago. You need tournaments on any online poker site. That's the bread and butter of the online poker world. I don't play them, but... That's the bread and butter. If, if it wasn't for the tournaments, there would be very few cash games running. And I wouldn't have anyone to play. <laughs> Except for other pros, which I don't want to sit really playing all day. So they launched with no tournaments, which is unbelievable. They launched without, un, without resizable tables, which is a very, very basic, obvious requirement of online poker at this point. And it has been for over a decade. And when people get used to resizable tables, you take that away from them, and they it, it feels weird. It's like there's something wrong with the interface. It's not even like, oh, it would be nice to have this. No, everybody's used to you have tables that can be resized in online poker. That's just the way online poker has been for well over a decade. And now, oh, no, we're taking it away from you. You can't resize the table. Crazy. It's not took it away. They just didn't have it. But they, they're releasing like this. So everyone hates it. Plus, there's bugs. Then, of course, it's a ghost town. Nobody wants to play there. And, yeah, they had a few innovative features like this splash the pot thing where they throw extra money in the pot every so often as, as, as a promotion. They called it rake back, which is not true, but whatever. They had a few ideas like that. They were pretty good. That would actually be interesting on a site that had traffic. But this stuff should all be secondary. This is what you develop after you've got a 
very well-functioning fun- basic site. But they really ended up with a product that nobody had any real incentive to use. Why? Because it had no tournaments. It had nothing running above microstakes. It had bugs. It crashed all the time. The customer service was lousy. The customer service was run by a guy who was so sensitive that he banned a player there. He actually banned a player for using the word imbecile. (laughs) They actually banned a guy for using the word imbecile in a customer service email. That was the worst thing he said is calling another rep an imbecile. Saying, hey, I talked to this other rep, but this imbecile did blah, blah, blah. Rude, I admit, but... You don't ban a player, especially when you're trying to get traffic. You, you ban a regular player over the word imbecile. That was the head of customer service who did that. That's, that's who's in charge of customer service. Moron. So they've got a hypersensitive customer service manager. They, they just didn't think about what the people wanted. How do you release a poker site with no tournaments and no resizable tables? How? Why put effort and money and time and resources into developing things like stupid emotions that the avatars show and other crap like that instead of putting those resources into developing multi-table tournaments, instead of putting those resources into resizable tables, instead of putting those resources into developing a robust product that does not crash and freeze and have other issues. So this was a Tremendous mess, and, and basically, Phil did not understand the software development process, that it's not just about hiring coders. Now, yeah, they ran into some other issues along the way that may not have been their fault, like the first coding team they hired apparently was terrible, and they had to eventually abandon them and start fresh. And I can understand things like that happen. Can't blame them for everything. But the problem is that... You had a bunch of people on this project who looked like they did not understand the software development process in the slightest. And all it would have taken was just to hire one person and give him some power who did understand the process. It, it could have been one of many people. I would have been great in that role. Cal Watt would have been great in that role. I, I could name a ton of people who would have been great in that role. Tons of people I don't know would have been great in that role. It, 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 it's not a unique thing to have someone in a position that could have stopped this. There are many people they could have hired that could have said, this is insane. You guys don't know what you're doing. Reverse course immediately. Here's what you're doing wrong. Here's what we've got to change. We've got to immediately fix everything. Our entire process is wrong. Everything we're doing is wrong. Well, it wouldn't have gotten there if you had someone from near the beginning that had some sanity about the whole thing. But unfortunately, you've had probably a bunch of 30-year-olds together with no experience in this industry, hired a bunch of coders who just pretty much did what they were told. And uh, we lost Trader Risky. And then there's no real competent direction to the whole thing. And it, it, the complexity of directing a project like this wasn't understood until it was too late and sadly they still don't understand you read phil's updates he still doesn't get it he still thinks they're just a a hair away from really blowing up that they've they've just got to get a few things right now they've got to get a few more features in there and everything will be fine no 
this was so much anticipated. It, everybody was so positive about this on two plus two, and I watched the extreme positive, extreme positivity turn into extreme negativity when people saw what was actually released, and when they saw the cavalier attitude that Phil had towards the people trying to help. He wasn't rude. Phil's always a nice guy. Phil's always very uh, gracious. I, I never see him bashing anyone. I never see him insulting anyone. In fact, I feel a little bit bad doing a segment like this because I, I don't even think it's an act. Like I, It's not like he's a dick who pretends to be nice. I've known people like that too. I, I think he actually is genuinely a nice guy. And it, it, in a way, I feel bad doing these segments because when I, I do these critical segments, I, I prefer to do, to do them about assholes or scammers or uh, just reprehensible people that I can feel good about bashing. And I'm, I'm not trying to bash Phil here. I think he just didn't know what he was doing. And I think that now it's too late. Now even if you bring in that type of person, it's too late. But 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 worse, they're not even changing course, it seems. Every, everything I've seen from his blogs, it kind of seems like they still don't get it. They still don't realize how wrong the entire process was. So what should have been done? What should have been done is that and let's, let's put aside the whole problem they had with the first team, whatever. That, that just caused a time delay. Big deal. But you, you, they should have, first of all, figured out what do the players want. What do the recs want? What do the pros want? Let's craft a site around that and then put some cool things on top of that. Then they should have had requirements. A poker site must have this. Remember, a poker site should? Well, yeah, a poker site should have tournaments. A poker site should have resizable tables. A poker site should be mostly bug-free. So there should be requirements, and you make sure those are laid out, and you make sure that the really important requirements are absolutely adhered to, and you don't even think of releasing until these requirements, the basic requirements, are there. You also develop this in a manner to where the most important things are done first, and then the kind of the fluff, the added pieces, the more innovative things uh, are built on top of that. And when you see that, and when there's something going wrong, when you release and the whole thing's a fail and people don't like it and people have complaints, you don't try to make excuses. You don't try to tell yourself you've done mostly the right thing. You just need a few tweaks. You, you honestly look at it in a mature fashion and say, hey, what did we do wrong? Okay, we did a lot wrong here. Okay, now we're going to completely reverse course. Like you've, you've got to be honest with yourself when something isn't working out and then make the necessary changes and make them quickly. And that I haven't seen happening either. Now, yes, they added resizable tables finally. But look how long it's taken. So what, like nine months or something since people brought this up? This should never have been released without them. And you also don't release a crap product because people are impatient to finally see the product. You say, wait, I'm sorry, we're not going to release it until it's something good. It doesn't have to have every great feature that you want to eventually add, but it's got to be basically functional. And this one wasn't. To have no tournaments, no resizable tables, not basically functional. Be full of bugs, not basically functional. So completely mismanaged. And they just didn't have someone, it looks like, to tell them that, who they, at least not someone working there that they gave any respect to. I don't know how much Phil let people tell him he was wrong. There's some people who are CEOs who just don't listen to anybody under them. I don't know if that was him or if he uh, just 
had a bunch of lackeys that just said, oh, yeah, Phil, you're doing a great job. <laughs> and then he wasn't. Nothing was malicious here. No one got ripped off. Investors probably lost a lot of money if there were investors. I, I, I have to imagine, I'm just guessing here, that there were investors and he was one of them. So I think a lot of money has been lost already. Eventually the site is going to fail. I'm just about convinced of this. And then finally the investors will bail out and then Phil himself will say, I'm not throwing more money into this. Screw it, I'm done. And then we'll get a blog where he somewhat acknowledges everything I'm saying right now. But not completely. I don't think he'll ever really get this. Not that he's dumb. He's a very smart guy. But about about this, for some reason, he's dumb. He's like, he's like selectively dumb with this topic. You ever known that? Like, you, you know of someone who's like usually like very smart and on the ball, and like with one topic, they're like selectively dumb. I'm sure you've known people like that. Just just one topic, they're just completely irrational. Like, I think for Phil, this is the topic. His, his poker site is like is where he's selectively dumb, and everything else, he's smart. So this has been a mess, and the sad thing is the poker world kind of needed this. It would have been nice to have had a replacement for poker stars. I wouldn't say replacement. That's too ambitious. But a viable alternative to poker stars run by someone who gets it and someone who is player-friendly. That would have been very nice, even if U.S. players couldn't play there. For the community, that would have been nice. But we didn't get it. And some of this, a lot of this, can be laid upon Phil's own feet. Because he was the one in charge, and I still think he doesn't get it right now. I thought back to when I was 15 years old. And let me tell you, most of you didn't know me at 15. In fact, very few of you, if any of you listening, knew me at 15. So sometimes my dad listens to this show. He, he knew me at 15, but uh, most of you didn't. Benjamin's mom and I go way back. Uh, she didn't know me at 15. Some of my friends who listen to this show, um, I don't think any of them knew me at 15. There's one guy who listens sometimes who, who knew me at 15. Anyway, if you knew me at 15, I will tell you that I was not very mature as most 15-year-olds are not. I was not one of these, like, 15-year-olds who acts 35. I wasn't. There were there were flashes that you'd see in my 15-year-old self that uh, you'd still recognize today in my 47-year-old self, but overall, I, I was not a mature individual. There's a lot of immature things about me. And sometimes I think back to some things I've done and said around that time, and I cringe. But there's sometimes I think back to things I've done and said in those times, and I think, wow, this was surprisingly mature. This was unlike me at the time. This was kind of foreshadowing the future me. And I can tell you one aspect where I was mature. In early 1987, I remember I was skiing. I probably was either 15 or about to turn 15. I was skiing, and I decided what I was going to do was build an online poker game. Not online poker. An online role-playing game. 
It would have been cool if it was an online poker game, but it wasn't. It wasn't about poker at all. An online role-playing game in the style of a lot of things that were popular at the time. There were a lot of them out there that you were – they were called doors because they were like external programs that ran through computer bulletin boards. So the bulletin board would connect externally to them. It would be on the, the computer of the person who ran the board, but it would be a separate program. And I decided I wanted to write one of those games. And I knew programming, but I hadn't taken any kind of formal programming class aside from one introductory class when I was like 10. The rest I just taught myself. So my form wasn't the best. And I was only uh, like not even 15 yet or about just turned 15. But I remember thinking I wanted to write one of them. I was skiing and I was like, I was going like up the chairlift and down the slopes. And I'm just kind of like thinking. And at first I felt so overwhelmed. Like, oh my God, there's so much work to this. And I was thinking of all the different aspects of developing this thing. It just seemed like so much. Plus I had school too. And it was like, I didn't have just like all day to sit around doing this. And I thought, oh my God, this just seems like such a big undertaking. And it, it just seems so overwhelming, all the different things to do. And I thought, you know what, I, I, this is something I'd kind of like to do, but it, it seems like too much hassle, I'm not going to do it. And then, then I grabbed a hold of myself and said, you know what, I don't have to just tackle this and write everything at once. I'm not under any kind of like strict timetable here. I'm just going to do this in phases. So why don't we start with phase one? Phase one is I'm just going to write the very basics of uh, the interface that connects to the BBS and uh, the the user menu, just basic interface stuff without actually writing the game yet. See if I can do that and see how that goes and then build on top of it. So I did that. It, it was pretty easy. I did it pretty fast and I said, okay, we've done this. Now time to build the actual game on top of it, which I knew would be the hardest part. And it took me a while, and I built that, and I put a lot of work into it. I also had already decided on the theme of the game, which was uh, it was called Max Hedrum. It was based on the uh, character that was in those Coke commercials and also uh, the TV show Max Hedrum at the time. Kind of a futuristic-looking uh, neo-noir type of action drama every week didn't do very well it was kind of a cool show though so that was going to be the theme and it was going to be like a kind of based around the tv show so i wrote the main part of the game and then i did the finishing touches after that the cosmetic stuff the uh the tweaking the extra features Whatever I thought of it needed to make it better. And you know what? As I went through every phase, the huge project, which seemed so tough, seemed much more manageable because I I actually had set it out in phases that made sense. First, program the very base of it, which is kind of easy, and but uh, kind of the base that you're going to build on top of, and then build the game on top of that, and then build the extras on top of that. And that made it much more manageable. So what I didn't realize I was doing at the time is I, I was setting for myself requirements. And I was also set, setting for myself, for myself uh, a development schedule 
and development priorities. And I was really managing the project. I was managing my own project and actually doing it in a way similar to what uh, really happens in industry. I didn't know that at the time. I just thought, oh, well, this kind of makes sense to make it a little easier on myself and not be as overwhelming. So not only do I think that was mature, the way I approached that, but then I did something else that was mature. When I released Max Headroom, I got kind of a tepid response. People played it. They're like, yeah, it's kind of fun. But people weren't excited by it. It was it was too similar to other games that were out. I didn't rip off other games, but it's like there, nothing made it stand out. It wasn't that interesting. The theme itself wasn't that interesting. People weren't that excited about a game version, a role-playing game version of, of the Max Hedrum TV show. Like it, it just wasn't something that caught on very well. So I wasn't happy with the reception of it. People didn't say, oh, this sucks. It was generally liked, but it wasn't that popular and people weren't clamoring to play it. And it was a little disappointing. So I could have sat there as a 15-year-old and said, oh, these people all suck. They don't know a great game when they see one. Or or, or deluded myself into believing that it's going to blow up eventually. I just got to wait for it to catch on. But where I did something mature is what I... I was honest with myself. I said, what's wrong with this? Why is this not doing as well as I thought it might be able to do? I said, is it the gameplay? I go, no, the gameplay is actually pretty good. Is it uh, the interface? No, 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 I think the interface is pretty good too. Then what is it? And I realized what it was. It was the theme. The theme was kind of boring. The theme was not something that people were... It, it, it didn't really stand out. It wasn't a theme that made people excited. So I said to myself, well, the theme is kind of the easy part. The theme's kind of just cosmetic. I could make another game. I could make a second game using pretty much everything I created here, but just make a different theme to it. It'll look like a different game, but it'll play pretty much the same way. And if I could find a better theme, I can release a second game, and I, it'll be more popular. So I thought about it, and I remember when I came up with the idea, when I was discussing with a friend about those BBS stores and and I said, uh, you know what I always wish? I always wish like when I go on those one of these BBS stores that it would like an error would occur and it would just kind of drop me in that person's computer and I could start snooping around in the computer. Like, wouldn't that be like, wouldn't that be cool? And then I thought of it. Wait a minute. What if I made my game to make it appear that's what happened? To where the person starts the game and it just appears to drop them at what's known as a C prompt, which back then was recognizable to everybody as like just being in that person's computer, the person running the BBS. So that was the theme. The theme, I made the theme around like a hacker theme. At first you get dropped at a C prompt and you believe you're actually in the computer of the person who uh, runs the BBS. And then when you try to get a directory of commands to execute, it gives you them, but then it's clear it's a menu for the game. And then the whole theme is about, uh, is about hacking. It was the same game as Max Hedrum, it just had a completely different theme. Pretty quick to remake, too. So when you would try to go to the game, it would drop you at a C prompt if you were a PC user, it would drop you at an AppleSoft basic prompt if you were an Apple user. And people loved it. That one became very popular. That one was far more popular than Max Hedrum. 
it wasn't financially successful because I didn't manage that well, but as far as popularity, it was a very popular game. I still meet people occasionally who were on BBSs back in those days who, like I tell them I wrote that game, they go, it was called Leech. They go, oh, you wrote Leech? Oh, cool. I used to play that all the time. Like they, And it makes me feel good. I'm like, wow, you know, I did that when I was 15. So here's my point. I'm not trying to pat myself on the back for this game. But what I'm trying to say here is that I was mature in that I saw that I had done something wrong and I was honest with myself what I had done wrong in the process and I corrected it. And I didn't make excuses and I didn't just wait for it to get better. I was honest with what was good and what was bad and changed what was bad. And in the development process, I figured out what you do first, what you do second, what you do third. I figured out what requirements are needed. I I figured out what the public wanted, especially when I considered about re-theming the game. Like the first time I did the game, uh, the, the Max, he- Max Hedrum version, I didn't think as much what the public wanted. And then when it didn't work, I thought about what, what would the public actually really like? So it's amazing as a 15-year-old who wasn't particularly mature for a 15-year-old, somehow with that, I was more mature than everybody on Galfon's team there. And that's crazy to me. But... That's what happens sometimes when poker players don't realize that their poker skill can't just translate to any other skill in the world. (laughs) Just as Michael Jordan couldn't become a world-class baseball player or even a viable major leaguer when he attempted to transition to that from basketball, even though he was one of the best basketball players ever, for the same reason that didn't immediately translate and in fact couldn't translate sometimes being a great poker player doesn't translate to being a great poker room manager or software developer or project manager or any of that stuff different skill sets some people may have both skill sets and some people may not The reason I think it's too late for Run It Once Poker is because it has already alienated most of its former supporters and those who were excited for it. There just isn't excitement about the product anymore. And even if they release finally what they've wanted to release all along, I think it's going to be too late. I think people are going to go, ah, I'm kind of done with this at this point. And... There's only so much money that can keep being thrown into this. And they still don't have a real marketing plan. Even if they release a great product finally and the 2 plus 2 nerds love it, they need recs on there. The 2 plus 2 nerds are not recs. The 2 plus 2 nerds are pros or semi-pros. And that's not going to do it. I don't know. This is just fascinating to me. Some of you may find this whole run at once thing boring, and some of you, some of you may mistake the whole thing that I'm thrilled it didn't work out, or that I'm just being I'm, I'm engaging in Schadenfreude, and that I am enjoying watching the pain Galfon is having because his uh, 
site isn't working out, or, or maybe I'm just bitter that they didn't hire me to be part of it. But I guarantee you it's none of that. I was actually hoping this was going to work for poker's sake. And I, I thought Galfon was a nice guy. I still think he's a nice guy. Some people don't like him as much right now who are following this because they think he was just dismissing them. Which he, He's not required to take other people's ideas and adapt them. He can just say, no, I think you're wrong. Or he can say, thanks for the ideas, but I'm doing my own thing. That's his right to do. But some people, some people kind of feel like he's just not listening. And they're kind of irritated with him. They, they don't hate him, they're just kind of irritated with him. I don't think this has ruined his rep or anything. He hasn't done anything bad. He just didn't do this right. And this needs to be a lesson to those who want to start a project like this. You want to start an online poker site, you've got to understand who's going to come to your site. You have to understand who your target audience is going to be, what they are looking for. Not what you think would be cool on a poker site, but what they will think is cool. You have to understand what absolute basic requirements your site must have. You have to understand what marketing is necessary and if you have the budget for that. You have to understand what testing process is required. You have to understand who to hire and not just hire yes-men. You have to actually hire people that may challenge you and say, hey, no, you're doing it wrong. And you have to hire people with experience and the maturity to not let things like this happen. You have to hire someone who say, whoa, 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 what do you, what do you think you're doing? What? No MTTs? What, no resizable tables? What? You're releasing like this? What, are you crazy? I know I probably took too long on this, but that's our last topic tonight. While we're here, I want to mention something else totally unrelated to everything. Not about poker, not about gambling. Just a little aside. Dodger Stadium is making a change that's going to be done within about a week. Maybe a week and a half. They are extending the netting on the field level to go almost all the way across the field level. When I say a netting, I mean it's an actual net, a tall net that's going to be 33 feet. It was 25 feet before, now it's going to be 33 feet in height that stretches all across the field level. So if you're at field level seating, there is a net in front of your face that you got to look through to see the game. I always thought that thing was awful, but before it was much smaller and it was easy to sit in places where it wasn't on the field level. When they expanded it, they keep expanding it for safety reasons. Like every time someone gets hit by a ball and gets injured or occasionally killed, especially if it hits a kid, then baseball panics and wants to keep expanding these nets. So the Dodgers had to expand it by order of Major League Baseball and did. So I sat behind it one time last year, and it was terrible. What was so terrible about it is, number one, it kind of felt like there was a mesh over your eyes the entire time. But, but number two, whenever the ball got hit, you'd lose the ball. You could not follow the ball. Your eyes could not follow the ball through the net. Just the way the human eye works, that you can't 
follow the movement of the ball when you're kind of when your eyes are moving with a net in your way. It's hard enough to follow a ball. The ball's pretty small, and you're not right on top of it. Even on the, even on the field level, you're, you're close, but you're not like right there at the field. You're not on the field. So it's easy to lose the ball anyway if you're not watching closely. But if there's no net in your way, I can basically follow where the ball is. But the second we leave the bat, I lose the ball. I go, what the hell's going on? So I said, never again do I sit behind this net, but at least there was a good deal of space on both sides to where I could sit on the side of the net and not have it in my way. Basically, the net was now stretching from dugout to dugout, from first base to third base, but if you sat a little bit to the left or the right of it, you still had a good view of the game with no net in your way. They're now going to expand it way further than that to where it'll be covering the entire field level except for the very, very far seats which have a crappy view in the first place. So they've ruined the field level seating. They've ruined it. Not every team has done this yet. The Dodgers, the White Sox, and one other team have done this. The Dodgers are in the process of expanding it. and By like September 2nd, it'll be done. But it really upsets me because I got real pleasure out of going to Dodger Stadium and going down to that field level. And you just feel so close and you feel so part of the action. It's different than sitting way up in the blue reserve level or even the orange load level. You're just right there. You're just so close to all the players. You feel like it's different than watching on TV and it's different than sitting in other parts of the stadium where you're farther away. You're right there. It just seems so cool. You're just there, part of the game. Everything's so close. And then I can't anymore because I won't be able to see where the ball goes. I'm going to have to move up to the next level. And keep in mind, they've made that netting 33 feet high, so... I don't know how much I'll be able to see for the next level up. They still get in the way. So it really sucks. I don't even know where to sit now. But it took away something that I've enjoyed for a large portion of my life ever since I first found how cool the field level is. And the only reason is because of a very, very tiny percentage of people who get injured or killed at these games. You may say, well, that's still people. Still people dying and these deaths could be prevented. Well, yes. But you always have to make decisions in life where there's chances that people will die. But you do it anyway. Such as driving to the baseball game. There have been many, many, many more deaths and injuries driving to and from the baseball game than at the baseball game. Many more. The dangerous part of going to a baseball game is driving there and back. Maybe at Dodger Stadium, another dangerous part is walking through the parking lot. (laughs) But that's the real danger. Not sitting there and having a foul ball possibly hit you. It might, but it's not likely. Very, very unlikely that a foul ball is going to seriously injure you or kill you. And they've now taken it away. They've now ruined the whole field level. Even though they're only 
preventing a, a very tiny number of deaths. And if you want to say, well, let's just stop all the deaths, okay, well, just stop having games then. Then all the people who die on the way to and from the stadium, they won't die anymore. Look, automobile deaths, there's so many of them every year in this country. If we hardwired every car to where it could no longer go any faster than 25 miles per hour, there'd be almost no deaths from auto accidents if the fastest you could go is 25. There'd be a tremendous number of lives saved. So why don't we do it? Why don't we just make the speed limit 25 everywhere and make it to where the cars actually cannot exceed 25? They just are built to where they can't exceed 25. Why not? It'll save a lot of lives. A lot of people who are going to die tomorrow wouldn't die. We'd have a lot more people tragically dying from auto accidents, no longer dying. So why not? Because it would be very, very inconvenient for everybody else. Because it would take two, three times the amount of time to get places. And that trade-off isn't worth it. So there's always a trade-off between safety and convenience, entertainment, whatever. There's always that trade-off. And that needs to be calculated, as tragic as it can be when there are the occasional freak deaths. You can't just ruin everything because it's going to save a few lives. Now, if there's a chronic safety problem, then of course it's got to be addressed. But this was not a chronic safety problem. This was just something that would occasionally happen. And people can control it by not sitting there. If they're that worried, they can go sit up by the one of the higher levels and they, this won't happen to them. It's not even like you can't see a baseball game without the risk of being hit by a ball. You can, If you're that worried about it, you can just go sit on a higher level where it's not going to get up there. So I'm very disappointed. It sucks when things you've enjoyed your whole life or most of your life are just taken away. Not a major tragedy in my life, but it's something that's kind of annoying. Something that saddens me. I look forward to it. I don't go to a whole lot of games every year, but I go to I try to go to every round of the playoffs, which they keep making. And I try to go to a few games every year. And now I, I just don't really have the motivation to go to regular season games anymore if I can't sit in the field level. It's very sad. Just wanted to rant about that since I had some time, since the show has been less than four hours. Hopefully next week we'll have some more material. Please, some people out there, scam some people, do some stupid or crazy or shady things. So I got some more to talk about next week. We do have seven days until the next show, though, so maybe we, we'll have a bit more time and a bit more stories. How did we go from having like 20 stories that one week to this? Actually, I should have known this was coming because last week we didn't have that many stories and we hadn't been on for two weeks. So then I come back six days later, of course there's not much to say. All right, before we shut this down, let me take a look if I ever got a response on Facebook from this woman who... Oh, good. I didn't get it from her, but I got it from a a listener who sent me this whole thing. Let's see. Long message here. 
Apparently this club has a problem recently with phony $100 bills in the cage. Either they have a dirty employee or they've got a regular laundering counterfeit money through the place and they don't care if somebody's inside on it. They even had the audacity to, to accuse a regular who actually pointed out to them that they had some funny money of trying to pass it off when they rejected the money given to them. The money came from the cage itself and they called the cops on the player instead of trying to find the real source of the, of the Monopoly money being put into circulation by their cage. You need to check the money being given to you from the cage and protect yourself since the management chooses not to do so. Demand they use a counterfeit direct detector or pen or better to force management to buy a counterfeit bill scanner, which stores use all the time. It's not like they can't afford it with the rake they charge at this place. Okay. So I, I think I see what happened here. Uh, there is a woman posting on Real Grinders about a situation involving counterfeit bills. And I guess they counterf- they they caught a counterfeit hundred, but she got it from them initially, and they didn't believe her, and they they read her Miranda rights, and they were going to call her, they were going to call her, or they were called the police, and she didn't get arrested, but she then called them out on social media, and somehow it got back to them. I think even on Real Grinders, the one one told them, and. She ended up getting like some threats from them about like don't post this on social media about us and so they came to some agreement where she wasn't uh she'll take the post down from social media if they give her the hundred dollars back because they confiscated the hundred also. So they did, but then she posted later that this wasn't really settled because they banned her. So she was pissed off that, yeah, they gave her the 100, but then they banned her. I might as well say her name because she posted this in the Real Grinders group, which has like 20,000 members or whatever, so it's not like this is a private discussion group. Her name is Lisa Toleno. She's the one who had this issue. Let's see what I can find here. She played at a place called Club 52. I'm not sure where this is. I guess I can look it up. But maybe Colonel Fabersham can call up and have a discussion about this. Because uh, she's claiming now that they they seem to have a lot of counterfeit bills circulating there and that when they caught her with one that they gave to her, that they came down on her and acted like it was her fault. So let's let's call this Club 152. Let's see where it even is. Club 152. Or it's Club 52, not Club 152. There's also Club 152 out there, but I think it's like a closed dance club. Club 50, oh, Club 52 is, uh, hold on. Is that, uh, it's in Florida. Okay, I thought I thought it was in, uh, this is really weird. There's a Club 52 at the SLS Las Vegas, but that's your players clubs. So that's not what's going on here. Then I see Melbourne. I'm like, wait, this is Australia? But no, it's Melbourne, Florida. Oh, they're closed. We can't even call them. That's too bad. No, let's try anyway. 
Let's try to call them anyway. It says they're closed, but who knows? This is Google saying they're closed. Sometimes Google's wrong. We'll give it a shot. We'll take a flop with this. Call Club One, Club uh, 52. Here we go. Thank you for calling Melbourne Greyhound Park. We are located at 1100 North Wickham Road, featuring simulcast wagering and big action poker. If you know your big party's extension, poker. enter it at any time. Press 1 for a Club 52 poker room attendant. Press 2. Let's do it. Yep, it hung up. Well, I guess they're not there. By the way, I got uh, a message from Mr. Tickle from earlier. He said they are called Virgin Hotels with an S because they have multiple hotels around the USA. Yeah, I knew about that, but it's just kind of weird. Welcome to Virgin Hotels Las Vegas. Like, I know what he's saying here. It just sounds awkward. Okay, well, it sucks I couldn't call Club 52. I don't know when they close, but it appears they're closed. I wanted to speak to them about the counterfeit bill. Colonel Fabersham was going to claim to have one. But I guess we can't do it. I've always been nervous about this myself. Like, what if I get past counterfeit bills by a poker room, especially playing at high limits? So they give me like thousands of dollars worth of hundreds. Like I can't check every one of them. It's like what if a long time later I, I go to use these hundreds and it's, it turns out they're counterfeit. Once a, a guy like had to give me a bunch of cash for something, I won't get into it, but I was very nervous that I got uh, counterfeit bills and I actually quickly went to the... Uh, cashier at the casino I was at and just had them check some random bills in there and they were okay I've actually never had a counterfeit bill I've never held a counterfeit bill in my life hopefully I won't other than if it's just me examining one but hopefully I would never find that one of my bills is counterfeit if I do have any counterfeit bills I I hope that it's not in my possession when it's discovered because it would suck but if they're if they're well made, I would probably have a hard time distinguishing them. Speaking of bills, do you guys know that a hundred dollar bill today, which is the biggest bill that they make in the U.S., do you know the hundred dollar bill is worth less than a twenty dollar bill in the early seventies? That's true. A $20 bill, like in the year I was born, 1972, is worth more than 100 today. And yet, back then, they actually had really big bills, like $10,000 bills. So how have we gotten to where there are lesser denomination bills today when there's been inflation to where a 20 is worth is worth less than 
or 100 is worth less than 20 was back then. We really, really need a $500 bill, but we're not going to get one because the government really, really hates people using cash. And they hate the fact that cash can be transported. They don't like the fact that it's easier to hide having cash if you have a lot of it. So they, they want to make it as tough as possible to use cash and to carry around cash and to store cash. So they are not going to introduce a $500 bill, which sucks. I couldn't believe there was discussion of eliminating the 100 I said, that's crazy. We should be going the other way. It's very tough on poker players because if you want to play a high-stakes game, you don't want to walk around with a big bulge in your pocket. It's like a mug me sign on your back. I guess I guess one tactic, I never thought of this, but uh, you could, instead of carrying around the cash in your pocket, you could stuff it uh, in the front of your pants and just uh, just make it look like you're pretty big down there. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's that's an idea. Just make it look like you get a big bulge in there, instead of in your pocket. But it's really a problem carrying around the cash like that. And I've sometimes been nervous that someone will see this and mug me. So it'd be great. I thought before it'd be great if they had five hundred dollar bills. You know, I got to bring like five thousand bucks somewhere. It's got to take ten bills. Easy. Now, if you want to take five thousand bucks, you got to take fifty bills. You want to take ten thousand bucks, you got to take a hundred bills. Hundred thousand. You need a thousand bills. But we will never see higher than 100 until a very long time from now when inflation gets so much that they finally will have to do it. And even then they might. By then they might just eliminate cash entirely. Who knows? I'm pretty sure in my lifetime I'll never see a $500 bill being issued again. Which is too bad. All right. Thank you for listening to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. We shall continue next week. More things to talk about, more things to do. If there's another form that you'd like to listen to the show, let me know. I will add it if I can. I'm looking into possibly monetizing this show. But not in a way that's going to interfere with it at all. But I thought of some ways to monetize the show that won't be obnoxious. But can bring in some money. Like, on one hand, it kind of feels wrong to make money from this show, but it, it really shouldn't. Like, it's a piece of entertainment that I'm putting effort in to make. I make it available to everyone for free and plan to always do that. We're never going to have a premium version or anything. It'll always be available in its entirety for free. So, pretty much every other show monetizes in some way, and this is the one show that doesn't, so... I've been thinking of some ways. 
nothing right now is going to happen. It'll be the same old show for a while. I'm definitely never going to take anything that would require me to restrict what I say on air. I want to be able to be myself completely as if I have no sponsor. I want full editorial control. So I wouldn't take anything like that. And of course, I would never advertise any shady products. I would never have anything on here that I would not stand by. I can't guarantee that everything advertised on here is on the up and up, but from everything I can see, it has to be. Otherwise, no. I've had a lot of shady casinos that would have paid me to advertise on PokerFraudAlert.com, especially the forum, that I've turned down. said no. Or I just ignore them. So, on the other hand, it, it would be nice to have some revenue coming in, but then, then I couldn't claim I run this thing at a loss. I'd love to say that. It'll be crappy when I can't say that anymore. That's the one downside. For right now, nothing's changing, but it's something I've been kicking around. Well, that is all. Next show scheduled August 29th, Thursday, around 8.30 p.m. Pacific Time. Good night. Shalom. <laughs>